He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney, he is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. What a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, May 7, 2022. Not exactly a stellar week unless you like J.D. Vance. I don't. He just won the Republican primary in Ohio. He's a Trumper. Although Tim Ryan got the Dem nod, he went to school with Greg Gold, who's in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Greg and I have known each other for... Over a couple decades now, we've done a lot of interesting things together, but I did not go to Eastern Europe with him. Rosa went. They met a friend there, a tour guide named Rudolf Mitzka. Gosh, we have a great interview. As they soon depart from Krakow to Lviv, Ukraine, find out why this super successful lawyer is going to Eastern Europe and perhaps putting his life on the line when he could just stay home at his law firm, the Gold Law Firm, in Greenwood Village, Colorado. Find out right away. After him, Ken Toltz, our foreign correspondent from Eretz Israel. We talk about all the great events of this week, like Roe v. Wade going bye-bye. Not great in the sense of hooray, but impactful. The most impactful and important boss of my life was Norm Early. He passed away late this week. This has not been a great May. I did a special show for Norm, dedicated to Norm, with Norm supplying the wisdom. Norm was my guest in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge not that long ago, and that's a separate edition with some commentary by me. Please check it out. Send it to any fan you know of Norm Early, and there were a lot. I'm a big fan of Dave Gunders, our troubadour, who is also traveling to a place with a lot of foreign aspects. NOLA, New Orleans, Louisiana for the Jazz Fest. Where else would a troubadour, a musician be? He gives us his beautiful song called A Sun Still Shining. And I'm dedicating this to Kendall Early, surviving son of Norm Early. Godspeed. Rest in peace, Norm. Stay tuned for my friend, the ever-entertaining Greg Gold from Krakow, Poland, as he's about to go to Lviv. What is this lawyer thinking? Enjoy. It's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way 
way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblawllc.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. How special is it to have a great friend in Poland on his way to Ukraine, and he's on the air with me right now. Greg Gold is one of Colorado's best personal injury lawyers. He's been doing it for decades. He's in Greenwood Village, the Gold Law Firm. I've worked with him on so many cases through the years. Consummate, great lawyer, and he cares. He cares about people. He's over there in Eastern Europe. Greg, thanks for returning to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Good to hear from you, Craig. We're, we're in Krakow, Poland uh, today, and we're, we're heading out to Lviv tomorrow, as you'll probably tell everyone, and I'm happy to be able to, to talk about it as well. So good to hear from you. I have never been to Poland, but if I went to Krakow, I imagine rather than an apartment or a hotel, I would stay at a crack house. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Does anybody make that joke over there? Um, not too many people. Uh, it's me, it's Rudolf. Uh, Rudolf Mitschke, Greg's uh, friend. Greg has yeah. the capacity to make friends within about 20 minutes of landing anywhere. And he met Rudolf. Rudolf Mitschke, welcome. Um, I'm super happy and very satisfied. Uh, very, very much looking forward to uh, to, to this, the, the podcast and uh, talking about uh, the issues on hand. All right, let me start with my buddy Greg Gold, and let me make him introduce himself a little bit because he's not a native Coloradan. He hails from a town called Warren, Ohio. And before we go overseas in this special foreign correspondence show. Let's stay closer to home. I don't know if I want to call it a great state of Ohio after the election this week, but Greg, tell Rudolph and the world about your upbringing in Warren, Ohio. Well, originally from Craig, as you know, a scrappy little steel town called Warren, Ohio, where my son is named after Warren, Ohio, and perhaps maybe a little Warren Zevon too. I was high school classmates with Tim Ryan, who is the Democratic uh, nominee in Ohio and just won handily there, and to be able to take on J.D. Vance. But I grew up in in Ohio in a a steel town. My father is still a practicing attorney there. Our family were involved in the steel business, my mom's family. And I have uh, made made my way west like a lot of good people through St. Louis Law School, and then on to worked worked in in Washington D.C. for a summer too for a, a think, conservative think tank out there, and then made my way to Colorado and have been a personal injury lawyer in Colorado, working with you for a, we've worked together on cases for twenty years when our kids first met. So that's it's been it's been a good run, and I uh, that's my my background. And I'm uh, now that's a fascinating story. Greg Gold, his upbringing is such that. Uh, 
his dad, Ned Gold, was a partner with a prominent guy named Hewitt. Tell everybody about that. Yeah, so my, my dad was a partner in the law firm Hoppy Fry Hewitt and Milligan, and Bill Hewitt was my dad's partner, and Hugh Hewitt was a little older than I did, but we went to the same high school, had the same teachers, and, and I, I call him a friend, and, and I've known Hugh, Hugh for a long time, and our families have been for friends for uh, 40 years. And so, yeah, I grew up, grew up a little bit behind Hugh, but yes, really familiar with him and, and uh, a good talk show host out of, uh, out of California now. And when you were in Washington, you were working for a Republican, if I recall correctly. And you and I have seen the political winds change, and we both reacted in our own ways, having families, watching events. Uh, I've seen you change a lot and vice versa, I suppose. So let's not bury the lead because here's what I'm worried about, Greg and Rudolph, and that is that people are going to start forgetting about Ukraine and Putin's vicious war on a nation. And I think that's horrible. And I know you think it's horrible. And Greg, I can't believe you're over there. Well, I can believe it because we talked about it. And then we met right before you left. We gave some supplies. I want to hear all about that. But tell everybody why a Greenwood Village successful trial lawyer would be over there in Eastern Europe trying to do something about this crisis. So this wasn't planned two weeks ago, Craig. Two weeks ago, I, I was uh, I was uh, working on a case and was working with a client who was a gorgeous client who uh, had traveled the world and doing humanitarian work. And her case resolved in two weeks and my calendar opened up. And my better half, Rosa Robinson, who's here with me too and has a place in Florence, had given up her, her, her place in Florence, Italy to Ukrainian families through the, the website set up by the, those two Harvard students who have placed, placed that. So I thought, well, gosh, before this, I was going to go ahead and raise money for the Ukraine. And I thought of this, you remember we talked about it, Craig, this idea of doing it through a, a theme called Lawyers, Guns, and Money, like Warren Zevon. And, and as soon as this case resolved, I said, okay, now I've got to get a singer. Now I've got to get, okay, we're going to get somebody to cater it. Maybe I'll even get Warren Zevon's son to come. And I'll invite a bunch of my lawyer friends and we'll donate money. And I said, to myself, by the time I am done with this pancake breakfast style fundraiser, it, it's people are going to lose enthusiasm for it. It's going to be more time. And I said, I've got two weeks. I'm going to, to go amongst my friends, get as much supplies and first aid supplies as I can and, and other, other uh, supplies as well. And, and find a way to be able to get it over here. Never done anything like it in my life. And in the course of two weeks, my God, have we ever gotten a lot of help from, from good people. And that's there's no middleman, and, and off we go. That's unbelievable. But why are you so moved by the situation? What has caused you to take action? Yeah, so I, I started thinking when I landed in Poland, our family were, were Polish, originally from Poland. We're Jewish and and, land, and came to America in 1851 on the Fidela, a, a ship from Liverpool, England, to, to New York. So I thought of the, the entire history of our family, and I was the first one in 170 years to be back in Poland. I, my, my dad told me that no one has ever been back since, since we came. 
But what, what, what hits us, Craig, is that you just remember when you're in uh, second grade or first grade and, and hiding under your desk, being brought down to the basement as drills because Russia or the Soviet Union was going to launch nuclear missiles against us. And then we see the fight that, frankly, Ronald Reagan did and, and, and Margaret Thatcher, as you know, I worked in the British Parliament as, as well, too, to stand up, stand up for uh, us, the what was right in the in the Cold War and to be able to prevail on that and then to see this I mean aggression attacking people for for no reason whatsoever everyone thinks it's not going to happen they're not going to do it I was saying they are going to do it watch this watch this they are going to do it they're going to attack them and and they did and and so it's just the idea of a of a bully uh, the idea of a, a peaceful nation living 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 within its borders and doing what it can to make itself uh, satisfactory and then uh, a big bully coming in and going after him i said like the rest of america and and, and our what billions and billions of dollars we're giving to the ukraine i want to do something about it and i want to do it now i've been thinking about it whether it's over nothing or is it about uh, Putin and maybe the Russian people thinking, you know, we've fought before. We don't like capitalism. We don't like democracy. It goes a little nuts. And here it is on our southern flank and our former territory. And we defeated this in World War II. They considered the Nazis to be capitalists run amok and the natural end of capitalism. So they're saying these are Nazis, we have to finish them off. It sounds ridiculous over here, but it resonates in Russia. And from some of this stuff, Rosen, you've been sending me from overseas, it seems like the Russians get a constant diet of that. Am I right? I'll, I'll let Rudolph handle that. Please, Rudolph. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, do Russians get a, a solid dose of propaganda in the state? Um, I don't. I, I think so. Yes. Like I, I don't think I'm. I'm discovering anything new and, and saying anything uh, revolutionary. I don't know if you guys uh, or um, if you had an opportunity to look at the propaganda shows that are being aired every day uh, on, on on Russian TV. Uh, there are those um, uh, people. Uh, I, don't, I, I hesitate to call them uh, masterminds of, of propaganda, but uh, they have no breaks in. Um, they're tripping over themselves to 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 put Ukraine and the Western world at uh, the the darkest light possible um, and, and uh, the the lies about uh, Nazism being uh, present uh, at large in, in Ukraine uh, are, are all false and uh, people are maybe not buying it uh, but a, a, a large enough percentage of the population uh, is con convinced um, supports uh, that idea right and going to jail is a big deterrent, too. You know, you speak such good English, Rudolph, and I imagine you speak uh, your native tongue. How many languages do you speak? I do speak only Polish and English. Uh, I do consume a lot of uh, culture in English. Uh, if it wasn't for my lovely wife, uh, I wouldn't have probably uh, even been speaking English, uh, Polish as much uh, in my life. And um, I have been told that a couple of times that I already express myself way more fluidly uh, in, in English than in Polish. Uh, but outside of that, I have not learned any other language, um, probably because I don't have the opportunity to as much. I would have to... Yeah. Um, 
No, no, here's my point. Here's my point, and Greg, see if you can back me up on this. I think part of the problem over there is language, and you can't, if you can't speak Russian, you don't know what they're being told. They may not understand Polish. There are so many different languages over there, and Russians hate the Ukrainian language because they want them to speak Russian. We've seen some of that here, but... Greg, you're over there. Am I on to something? Everybody's speaking different languages, nobody understanding each other. And uh, Poland, how does it feel? Does it feel like America, free, democratic? I, um, that, 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 that set me back. I mean, when I landed in, in Krakow and I walked down the streets and we got into the, and got into the suburbs, I said to myself, There's not, it's not, does, has no feel whatsoever of any type of like a refugee crisis. The city is impeccably clean. It's impeccably run, 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 run perfectly. And it's, it's comfortable. And the part that really hit me quite yesterday, and I haven't told you this, is that Rudolph and I were walking down the street, and this is my only inclination that there was uh, Ukrainians who are, you know, uh, probably millions of them here right, that, that have come to, come to Poland, is that there was a, about a 35-year-old woman who came up to Rudolph and I, and she had, had almost tears in her eyes, and she's explaining not that she needed money to stay in Poland. She wanted money isn't that right which she yes. said and she wanted money to go back to the ukraine to go back to ukraine she wanted money to take her children back to ukraine and she sat there on the street and and rudolph spoke polish i'm still trying to master english and and but he was able to understand her enough that she was genuine it it still hit me this morning i could see still see the tears in her eyes asking us for help to be able to get on the train to go back so it's there's there's a conglomeration of, of languages that are here i can't tell a damn difference between any any of them my, myself but the, the 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 overwhelming sense of of uh, uh, is that the people from you from ukraine want to go back um, they don't want to live in Poland. The, the, the situation with uh, the, the mass of Ukrainians that have come to Poland is that uh, most of them have been um, accommodated uh, by friends and friends of friends and families. Uh, maybe uh, something interesting for the listeners is to know that uh, prior to the war on the 24th of February, um, over around a million of Ukrainians uh, have been already present uh, in Poland. Um, this, is a, this was a steady, uh, maybe not a steady, but a, uh, an influx of, of people that, that, that came to Poland over the last uh, um, eight years since uh, 2014 Crimea and Donbass situation. Um, they have come here because, well, the situation in Ukraine looks very bleak. Uh, and here in Poland, they have it much easier to assimilate, much easier to learn the language. Sure. Um, uh, plus, our shared history... Uh, makes it so that uh, as a Ukrainian, it's very easy to find a, a Polish ancestor. And um, Polish people, pe Polish state uh, is very keen on um, giving them uh, what is what, what we call a Polish card, oh, a, a card of a Polish. You can be a Ukrainian and get something of a um, a, a plastic that gives you uh, healthcare, insurance, uh, a right to work, right to live, and uh, uh, all the all the um, basic things in, uh, in in Europe. So, yes. Oh, all right. Poland is so progressive, and I think about it a lot because you and I could be 
neighbors, Rudolph, even your last name, Mitzke, kind of sounds Yiddish. And I heard a lot of Yiddish growing up, which is a conglomeration of Polish and those kind of words. And my family would be there along with millions of other Jews, but for World War II, the Holocaust, Poland had so many of our people, Jewish people, Greg's gold side of the family, he talked about that. I have other family from Keith just finding out about it. It was the pale of settlement, and honestly, like most Jews, I did not have great feelings about Poland because I thought they really gave up the Jewish people during World War II. They collaborated with the Nazis and the Russians, and the Jews got caught in the middle. Same thing in Ukraine. Now I'm educating myself more, and I've talked to people from Krakow. I had a great guest from the Krakow JCC, another guy from J-Roots who told me, you know what, the Polish people were under the boot. What could they do? And besides, they had a lot of people put to death for trying to help Jews. They had more righteous Gentiles than any other place. And reconsider Poland, and I am because I've seen how Poland has extraordinarily reached out to Ukrainians. They seem very much on the side of freedom. And now I'm thinking about Lech Walesa and the Pope, the great Pope, John Paul from Poland. Maybe everybody's reevaluating Poland. What do you think, uh, Rudolf? Well, uh, firstly, I have to uh, probably remark on how um, when you said that, uh, I think you something like the most of most of Polish people or like most of Poland collaborated. Um, uh, I'm always open to kind of hearing opinions of, of, of others. Uh, I do have to probably say that in Poland, uh, that opinion is very, very... Mm, well, Dangerous to say. I think that, that I know. Dangerous. I bet you have. You have. If I could interrupt, if I could interrupt, I I heard yes. that it's been made illegal. I don't want to get you in trouble. Yes. And before no, no, this, no, no, before no. this war, I heard about them putting up monuments to brave poles who did stand up for Jews, like at a train station. And yes. some people think, well, that was a small percentage. And how could they have Auschwitz? How could they have the death camps? And there were always stories of people, hey, you want to know where a Jew lives? Give me $20 and I'll tell you he's over there uh, a block and a half away. I mean, this is what I grew up with and maybe it's not fair and maybe it's illegal to talk about. And and I don't know. I wasn't there. But I know Poland was the place where the most people died, the most Jews died in the yeah. death camps. Um, I just interrupt. Uh, they uh, Poland was the people well, was the place where the most people died because Poland was the place where the most Jews lived. Yes. Um, that is where they were located, and that is where they died because that was the most uh, the, the place uh, kind of lo- logically where you can place uh, the death camps. Um, and they the most most of Jews lived in Poland because it was a good place for Jews compared to the rest of Europe. Um, if you look at Polish history. 
Um, we have a steady influx of uh, Jews coming to Poland because the level of anti-Semitism of any oppression was way lower than anything in the West or in uh, the East. Um, that period has ended uh, in 18th century when Poland lost its independence and it was uh, taken over from three sides. Uh, uh, your listeners uh, should probably know that uh, before the Second World War, uh, Poland was only independent for 20 years. So it, it it's a very small uh, blip and a very important one in, in, in Polish history. Um, but uh, the number of Jews in Poland and the fact that they were killed in Poland was because the situation here for Jews was so uh, good. As to the anti-Semitism um, in the Second World War, um, I think... I'm going to uh, say exactly like you, I don't know because I haven't been, um, but the prevailing opinion uh, or the, the narrative here in Poland, and I think that's something that is uh, backed up by uh, by facts, is that uh, the, the, the majority, um, there is way good than bad, um, and if you actually read the, a lot of accounts of Jews uh, during uh, the occupation in Poland, uh, their emotions or their uh, attitudes towards Poles is very um, swingy uh, and it goes from large frustration from like, how can you not help me more? Uh, why does this happen to my neighbor? Why does it happen to my uncle? Uh, and the next day it swings to the exactly opposite uh, direction to thank you. Because of these people, we still live. Um, I might just well, finish on not, one... Yeah, please, go ahead. One, se one sentence uh, is that uh, there is a very important award you might know, uh, the Righteous Among the Nations Award, and Polish nation, uh, Poles, uh, um, uh, comprise the largest ethnic group in uh, that award. It's an award that's given to people who acted bravely uh, with disregard for their own safety and life uh, in the face of Holocaust. Yeah, Maybe well, that, you know, that's a tremendous... Uh, in Poland. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and right. And... and and here's the thing. You, Rudolph, have been blessed to live during this time of freedom in Poland, freedom and democracy. And that's what you've known. And that's what the Ukrainian people, your neighbors, have known. And I think once you've gotten a taste of freedom, you like it and you don't want to give it up. Maybe you value it even more than people in America who have always had this freedom um if i can yes i have definitely taken freedom and my reality has been very glamorous uh, colored and rainbows um but uh, i wouldn't say the same for the ukrainians uh their their their, their fight is valiant uh, they're brave as hell i think the whole world is stunned at what they're doing there and how a righteous they're fighting, but me talking to my friends who have emigrated to Poland over the last eight years, they did so because living in Ukraine wasn't full of freedom. It wasn't good. It wasn't safe. It was a corrupt state um, in which um, not much has moved forward. All right, but that's uh, because of the Paul. Right, but that's Paul Manafort working for Putin and stalling. Putin's cronies there, Moscow really running Kiev. 
And it's only been within the last 10 years that they've broken free. Let's move on to Zelensky. Let's get real modern about it. Is he a sea change? Is he a historic fellow like your famous Polish pope? Is he up there? Ooh, uh, I, um, for a Polish person, uh, I, th- I I cannot probably say that anybody in, in the history is bigger than uh, John Paul II, uh, but um, I think he, time will tell, of course, but he's he's way up there. I, I think he's, he's, he changes is a very good expression. I would definitely agree with you, my sir. All right, let's get Greg Gold back on because he's a great evaluator of people. What do you think of that little Jew, Volodymyr Zelensky? He is setting a standard that's hard for other Ashkenazi Jews to live up to, Jewish men. And even the word Ashkenazi, I learned this as part of doing this podcast. You hear that word all the time. It means people of the river, toward the Rhine River, but the discrimination that Rudolph talked about didn't just come from Moscow in the east. It came from the west, pushing the Jewish people toward Poland and Ukraine, which is why our ancestors settled there. But one of those people who got pushed is Zelensky. His family had the crap knocked out of them in World War II, victims of the Holocaust, and then the communism that followed. What do you think of this guy? Uh, Greg, you've studied Churchill and Thatcher. Is he a historic character? I think he might be the new leader of the Western world. I mean, he, he, you, you, look, you're, you look at him and you feel, like, well, he, look, he looks great. He speaks well. He can tell a story. He's witty. He's likable. He's got, he, he comes up with the phrases that he has sticks in your mind. I don't need a bus ticket. I don't need a bus ticket. These these are phrases that will go down in history in 40, 50, 100 years from now as Ukraine puts up this fight. I like him. And it's the, it's maybe the same evaluation when you, you look at someone in the courtroom, too, a witness, or you look at someone, uh, a lawyer. I like him. He and, is and a, people, did, you know, like, did you know he is a lawyer? Before he went into show business, he got a law degree, practiced law for a while. He's he, he he's got it all. He really he really does. And and when the time has come, it's it, it, he he he's a hero now. And he he's um, they need him, and 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 they've got him. And and I and I like him. That's all I can say. I really 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 respect him and appreciate. Him. You know, you, know, um, you, you, you know my criminal justice background. I think Putin is like a guy who won't let his woman go. She wants to leave, and he says, no way. And the better she does, apart from him, the angrier he gets. It's like domestic violence. I don't know. Ukraine should have its freedom. But then, you know, how would America feel if Texas wanted to depart? I'd feel pretty good about it, but I don't know about other people. <laughs> Um, uh, One thing that uh, I would probably like to maybe comment on Zelensky uh, is that um, it's it's a change. He's emblematic in this way uh, uh, for the whole of Ukraine, um, where he's way younger than you uh, might think for a president, especially in uh, the East. Um, I think he's 
now 44, uh, which uh, is also coincidentally the average uh, age of decision of the decision makers in Ukraine. Uh, now, Greg, can I could I just uh, kind of give you a question? What do you think is the average age of a uh, of a decision maker in Russia? Sixty-seven. Sixty-seven. Seventy-six. Seventy-six. And or at least something over seventy. I'm 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 a little bit nervous. I might. That's get all the, right. The, the, the That's number. okay. It's but, close enough. It's, it's just it's, a podcast. It's yeah. It is important then to say that uh, the, he's young blood especially in the Eastern European post-Soviet countries, um, that matters a lot. All right, let me ask you if him being Jewish matters to you or anybody in Poland. No, I, don't, uh, I, I, I really don't think uh, anybody thinks of him uh, that way. And uh, the only way that fact becomes uh, important is... Uh, and con- counter arguments to uh, the Nazi of Ukraine. Oh, what, Nazi. what do you make of that it, claim? What is it, the Azov gang? Probably uh, uh, strong in Mariupol. I mean, there are far right-wing elements of our own military, but you know the Russian argument. They say there are Nazis in Ukraine. Is that true? I, I asked Rudolph that yesterday. I said, I mean, when, you, when you're quiet and everyone's in there talking among themselves, is, is there... Do, do people say that in Poland? Do people feel that that in Poland that they're they're Nazis in in, in right right wing in in in, in Ukraine? You would have to go really far right to think of Ukrainians as uh, as 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 anything close to Nazis. the The problem is historical. There there is a, a very important Ukrainian hero who clearly collaborated with mm-hmm. uh, the Nazis uh, and used Nazis they used them a little bit it was a it was a it was a um, uh, a story of him again be, be, being with the Nazis um but for Ukrainians he it's not the part that they, that 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 they that, that they focus on him he was he was trying to get Ukraine independent and that's where he saw an op- opening to to go for, they do not. Uh, he, he, he was the enemy of our enemy, and if I understand the history correctly, say what you will about the Nazis, and I call them the scum of the earth, and I'd like to destroy them forever. But say what you will about them, they were the opponents of communism, and especially when Russia betrayed yes. them in World War Two. So Ukraine. Uh, trying to get out from under communism, Lenin, Stalin. And oh my God, Rudolph, this Stalinist tactic, I get to write for the Colorado Sun and it just seemed to me that we were all asleep at the wheel because when Putin started venerating Stalin, that was something that should have set off warning signals throughout the world, right? Because Stalin starved people he, he probably murdered as many, if not more, than Hitler. I recommend the book Bloodlands by Tim Snyder about your area of the world and how much death happened due to Hitler and Stalin. Wasn't that, did you take notice of it, Rudolph, when Putin started loving Stalin? Didn't you say, uh-oh, this is problem? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um uh, I mean, how do you I feel about Stalin? I mean, I, I, is Stalin I mean, the evil guy that I'm talking about? 
I think uh, that's funny to me just because uh, for, uh, when you're saying, oh, oh, there's something going, uh, there's something might, 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 uh, bad might be cooking. Um, I never have an opposite feeling when it comes to Russia. And nobody in Poland thinks, okay, okay, it's cool now, it's chill. It's always um, um, expecting wor- the worst. It's always thinking, okay, this is probably a ruse. And in in 99% of cases, it is. So when you when you hear that thing, um, you, in Poland, you're more like the usual, the regular. That that's not that's not that doesn't seem very um, right. But for uh, for for a while there, didn't Russia kind of downplay Joe Stalin as a good guy? It just seemed to me that it was only recently that Putin resurrected his image. Greg, you're a great historian. Uh, I mean, Stalin was terrible. I don't think that people in the West quite appreciate how horrible a guy he was and what a murderer. And for Putin to say Stalin was a great guy means, yeah, I liked his starvation tactics. And now we're seeing people starve again. And it's just horrible. In 2022, are you kidding me? I, I, I revisited my World War II history when I know that on September 1st, 1939, the Nazis invaded uh, Poland. And then they, they reminded me, I was at Auschwitz today, and Rudolph reminded me too, that it was, was it two weeks later? Two and a half. Two and a half weeks later, the Russians invaded Poland and, 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 and during this. And just a, literally a block from where we where we are is a uh, a memorial to, it's called the Hinnon Forest. The, the Cotton Massacre. The, the Cotton Massacre, which I will tell you I had not heard of and did not know about until I got here a few days ago. The Cotton Massacre in which in which the the Russians, the, the Red Army, the Russians, took 20,000 20, Poles and, 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 and put them into a field with a bullet, a, a Soviet bullet in the back of their head and killed them. And Russia denied it for the last 50 years until 1991 when they finally admitted that, yes, these were Russian bullets in the back of, of 20 Polish people. 20,000. 20,000. 20,000. 20,000. 20, 20, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, you think there was a part like poor Poland got invaded within two and a half weeks by Russia and by Germany. And everyone stood by and, and didn't do much and waited until a couple more countries came in before, in my understanding of history, until, until Churchill said no more. Let, and, me, let me ask you, with that massacre, 20,000, oh my God, who were the people? Was it indiscriminate or were, did they round up certain people? Um, it was it was an, a thought of a, um, a thought of plan uh, because when um, the Germans the, the Nazis attacked Poland from the west, um, the the Polish army was fighting but also retreating. There was a, a couple of plans of this of, of defending on this river that river and um, slowly uh, g- giving ground uh, to to wait for help. Um, but then the Soviets attacked from the other side. Uh, Polish army was in total disarray, and a lot of that army was taken uh, prisoner uh, by the Soviet army. Um, then so was it primarily an army that got massacred there? That is ex- on, only, and uh, the only officers were picked out out of the prisoners of uh, POW camps, 
and uh, the 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 order was signed by by Hitler himself, uh, Stalin himself, with his own hand um, to to kill them. The reason was that he wanted to get rid of Polish intelligentsia, mm-hmm. and that is exactly where the word comes comes from, because it's a Polish word uh, which basically means intelligence. So only the officers, because in in those times in the Second World War, if you finished uh, high school, as in if you had higher education, you automatically became a reservist officer. So all those twenty thousand people were like you guys, lawyers. They were also doctors. They were also um, scientists. They were all the people again with a higher education, and so that way Stalin killed our leadership killed our brave souls um, and to this day in Poland uh, the way we some, sometimes look at our incompetent uh, politicians and we say to each other um, all the brave ones all the competent ones died in those forests right oh my god how many brilliant people were killed in the holocaust let's go back to that let me test your knowledge of Ukrainian history Rudolph what do you know about the massacre at Bobby R? Um, well, not in details, but I know how that it was one of the biggest massacres, and uh, the, the the story of it is uh, quite um, a, a, a shocking one of how the people from the city were just taken outside uh, and, and and killed. Not just people; a, they I went to, to the Jewish people. Said, "If you don't come to the area of Bobby Yar, you will be killed and hunted down." But if you come here, you'll be okay. And 33,771 people in two days were put uh, in a ravine outside of Kiev, or I guess it's part of Kiev, and they were shot to death. And they were ordered first to take off their clothes. They stole everything. And then they were ordered to lay down on the people below them who'd already been shot. And if they didn't lay down to be executed that way, then they were assaulted, hit with the rifles, and forced to fall down and meet their death. Few people escaped. And the problem with Bobby R is there seemed to be a lot of Ukrainian collaboration and then influences from Stalin's Russia. So... This is painful, and right where Greg and I live, there's a park in Denver memorializing Bobby R. Park. So we have these feelings, but I have to tell you that I think Ukraine, they're like you. They've had a taste of freedom. You can tell I'm totally behind Zelensky. I'm supporting Greg big time in his mission. I'm just saying it's a complicated history And I'm talking a lot about it, and I've never even been there. I want to go there, and I hope to meet you. And I I just can't tell you how exciting it is to talk to you and Greg being over there. But uh, these are the feelings of Americans. Let me ask you, Rudolph, how do you feel about America? Are they doing enough for the Ukrainians in your part of the world? I, I asked him that yesterday. I said, "Well, how how is this going to end? What's going What's going to happen?" And and and, and you know, tell tell us what you told me. Well, the firstly, the, the atmosphere in, in Poland is all hurrah. Uh, we're 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 all just waiting for 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 Russia to 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 to, to get kicked and and and, and to uh, to lose. We, um, as far as I know, the rest of the world thinks, "Oh, we kind of don't know what's going to happen." Uh, the atmosphere here, it's going to uh, be awesome, and we're going to win, and and we're ju- we're just going. 
it's 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 easy. Um, so you think Ukraine will win? I love that. And by winning, does that mean Putin is out of power or otherwise destroyed? Uh, that's uh, I'm telling you my at- uh, the, the atmosphere which is in Poland. That's the, give that's, me your it, most it, give me your most optimistic outcome. Ukraine's going to fire back. They're going to win the war, and then what happens? There are two of them, but firstly, if if you may, because you 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 asked me about the role of America, yes. um, I, I think um, the the scenario went exactly as planned. As in, uh, the attack has happened. Uh, Ukrainians have fought hard enough and and long enough uh, that uh, they kind of bought their uh, their help. And the bill that uh, Joe Biden um, signed in, uh, what was it? I think over a week ago already, of those thirty over uh, billion billion dollars. That is a tremendous help. And when I heard about it, uh, I, as a Polish person here in Poland, uh, felt two times safer. Uh, I felt like, okay, now now it's just uh, downhill. Uh, from now, now it's just a simple road. Now it's just waiting because the, the, the might is overbearing. Well, here's the thing. Greg, do you want to tell them or should I that America doesn't really have that money anymore? <laughs> we talked about giving it to you. Anyway, we're having a few problems over here, inflation, etc. But uh, I, I'm, I'm looking for an optimistic outcome. I think Putin bit off more than he can chew. But Rudolph, what about nukes? Because he has them and he seems, do you know the Yiddish word meshugana? I, I think nope. he's crazy. It means loco, crazy, not right in the head. He's got nukes. That doesn't sound good. Are you um, worried about that? So, uh, oh, the, well, worried. Not so much, uh, but it's not because that it's it's sensible, uh, but just because, uh, as in, like, um, how am I supposed to think of such a scenario as being possible? Uh, as we talked yesterday with Greg, I have uh, gone through a scenario of what happens if a nuke uh, blows up and what am I supposed to do. Uh, that really changed something in me. When I, w- when I did, I, I would say, okay, that's a possibility. I also did make sure that my my friends and my loved ones uh, also know that procedure. And that's that department. Because uh, other than that... Um, what else am I supposed to uh, do? Don't, uh, here's the thing. You can talk to me because I'm an older baby boomer. Not that old, but old enough to remember how to fight nuclear wars. And you find a desk and you get under it. You cover your head. It's called duck and cover. Greg will teach it to you. But let's hope it never happens. We worry yeah, about we it have, in America, I'm too. But you. You won't have much warning in Poland. Greg, do you feel safe in Poland? I, I do feel safe in Poland. And and, and to fin- finish your statement of putting your uh, – Charlie Munger at the Berkshire Hathaway, they asked him what the the plans were for, for Berkshire Hathaway if there was a nuclear war and how much insurance was going to pay, pay off. And he said his plan was to get under his desk and kiss his ass goodbye. That was the plan for the nuclear war. He's more he's, 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 he's more flexible than me, and he has a few more dollars. There, there, there's there's no 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 sense of of, of of refugees. There's no sense of disorder. There's no no sense of it's it's 
it, it, it's safe here. It's incredibly uh, safe here in Poland. Um, I'm going into Ukraine tomorrow. We'll see how see how that that is. But uh, okay, I'm, tell us your plans in case this is your last uh, interview. <laughs> Thank you for that, Craig. I, I my, my plans are to go to the border of Medica mm-hmm. and then and then cross from Medica into into Lviv, and then I have. Uh, bags and bags of uh, supplies that I brought over in no sophisticated manner, but there's no middleman. And we took it as fast as we could right away with a lot of donations from my, my friends and colleagues. And, and uh, I'm going to give it to a man who's coming from Kiev. That's what's going to happen. Mm, if, if I may comment on uh, how uh, Greg noticed that there are no refugees, there are no homeless people in the city. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a situation that's all over Poland. Um, the last two months, it has been the largest influx uh, of refugees since the Second World War of Ukrainians to Poland. Um, but what is emblematic is that there are no refugee camps, there are no homeless people on the streets. Um, there is more than enough of supplies. Uh, if you sign up to be a volunteer, um, you will not get a response because there is already too many people helping and wanting to help. Uh, that is the situation. Uh, the, um, the 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 encounter that we talked about uh, some time ago, Greg mentioned about a woman on the street. That that was something very unique because I have not seen that. Nobody has uh, yet since the, for the last two months uh, came to me and, and asked me for something. Uh, I did help, but it was not on the street by a stranger. I was usually approached by a friend of a friend because again, there's a lot of Ukrainians already in Poland. Um, I did drive to one of the. Mm, one of the border crossings uh, because I wanted to pick up a family of my friend. Have you been to America, Rudolph? Let me tell you about America. Because yesterday I worked downtown and I went to the Rockies game midday. That's baseball. And I love it. And I took a scooter. But along the way, I got approached for money, I think, about 10 times. So Krakow sounds a little better than Denver right now. But... Greg, you had a heck of a day. Before we leave Greg's travel plans, Rudolph, is he safe? Is it okay to go to Lviv? Will he be okay? And I'm uh, I'm mainly worried about Rosa because she's more important than Greg. <laughs> uh, I'm uh, obviously I'm not at liberty at any authority to say to 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 say, but I'm going to say. Um, but 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 my opinion would be yes, just because Lviv is uh, such a long uh, distance, uh, such a far distance away uh, from any um, any fighting zone, and bombardments of Lviv are uh, very infrequent, uh, very ra- rather rare, um, and if any. Mm, lucky it, it would have to be a very lucky rocket uh to 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 to, to meet um uh, rosa and greg right unless they start an offensive against Lviv, because they have bombed it they have those cruise missiles i hope it doesn't happen but there is an element of danger and greg i admire what you are doing and i think it's brilliant you are going to find out really what is the best way to help and I hope you will report next week from Lviv. Um, that will be fascinating. I I got a copy of your itinerary. Did the hotels warn you what to do if a bombardment should happen? The, the, the last, I guess, 
you may know Levine, first of all, is the same exact same size as Denver on uh, within a, a, for for the Denver yes. pro, De, uh, no, yes. no the no Denver proper seven hundred eighty thousand okay. in the two thousand twenty census to the seven hundred eighty thousand approximately for Lviv as well too. I mean, our our goal is to is is to stay out of the way, make these deliveries. Frankly, there, there's candidly is a way to to take in stories and then to bring back stories and use those stories to 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 raise more money and to do what do what we can. But I did see that the cruise missiles landed about four days ago into the train station in Lviv, and the electricity was out and the water. Was out, so I, I don't know. I got on hotels.com and asked, "Is do we have electricity in the hotel?" And it was it's one of the a classic Eastern European letter that we we're, we're we're we have a wonderful spa that's going to double as a bomb shelter, and that everything is running as normal, and your room service will will be there on time. It was that type of thing. It was an odd, one, odd response email, but yeah, it's it's working. It's up and up and going, and. Uh, uh, we're gonna we're gonna take it take it in, stay out of the way, and 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 get back safe. Pray to God. Let's talk about your day to day. Never been to Poland. Never been to Auschwitz. I always think, would I want to go? I guess you have to. I I don't know. It, it, you've experienced it. Tell us about it. Yeah, it's there when you. It's it, you read about it. You listen to it. Watch movies some documentaries about it and then you get there and it's not much that keeps me speechless i couldn't talk you just look and, and take it in and, and and try to learn and have a sense of what went on and and appreciate it and then remember you know the the idea never never again it it one of the first things i saw today craig when i when we when we went Went to Auschwitz. Was there was the art and Rosa Rosa's got a, a gallery in Florence and had one on Santa Fe uh, Boulevard in Denver. But there's the art was of of the of the frankly the, the pictures of of a painter who'd paint that they had the duplicity that they had at Auschwitz on top of the one point one million massacre. But they would have an orchestra every morning that would have to be able to ca- help count the workers as they came in and came back. They would be able to tell the people, tell them when they got off to leave their bags and we'll bring your bags to, to you. Um, they would say, if it, they, you know, we're going to separate the men and the women and we'll see, you'll see your fa- family later. Uh, we're going to disinfect you. When, I took all of that, that duplicity in, and the, the organized, uh, industrial organized duplicity and savagery of it all, and tried to put it in, in line with anything else that I've known in history. And there's nothing. There's nothing with that much organization and thought. And the idea that, uh, the understanding that it was. They, they 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 killed people with guns and they 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 would have places where they they would have torture tor- they showed us where they torture people by starving torture people by having them stand stand up but then there was the sense of the that when they get arrived on the trains when the Jews arrived let's just say it when the Jews arrived on the trains it was the Jewish women the Jewish uh, 
children and, and, and the, the men who they thought couldn't work. You weren't even there a night. You weren't there one night. They put you in, in, into, the, into the gas chamber and, and they, they killed you right away. There was no camp. The people who stayed there, I, I never had an appreciation that it was just right off, right off the train and, and, and right, into the, right into the gas, cha gas chamber. 1.1 million. And then how many, this was just hit me too, how many, how many Hungarian Jews were killed, were killed in the last four or five months of the, of World War II? And frankly, what I, what I saw too, my conspiracy theorist, but after we, we probably had some surveillance balance being the allies and knowing what was going on there, but how many were killed at the very end of it? By there, that, uh, by that demon. Eichmann, who got out from behind his desk and went to Hungary to make sure it happened, even though he knew the war was lost. That's how committed they were to the final solution. Eichmann, who designed Auschwitz, thank God Israel took him and executed him. That's a beautiful thing. That's beautiful justice. Just hearing about it, I used to watch these movies yeah. in my public schools about the Holocaust, and I'd come out of the room, and I'd be ready to fight. I'd be so angry, but I've never been to Auschwitz. Do you get angry there? You, you, you get... You do get disappointed in humans and disappointed in us. And you get disappointed in in, in, in what we do to each other. Um, you, you, you try to... It, it 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 didn't rise to the level of, of hate of that feeling that that you, you have. It was just a, a catastrophe of of that where it's where one large you know a slaughterhouse from one end to the other just continues and goes on and on. But nothing could compare to what 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 occurs in in, in Auschwitz in, in the in the course in the course of history. At well, any time, what? I I thought that too. But I'm reading Bloodlands and the way Stalin starved people to the point that they became cannibals. And I mean, it's almost merciful the people getting off a train and being put to death as opposed to. Just the merciless crap that people put up with. And we can say, well, you know what? That happened in Ned Gold's lifetime, Sheldon Silverman's lifetime, not in Greg and Craig's lifetime. That was way back when. It's never going to happen again. But it is these images out of Ukraine, people starving, siege, Mariupol, maternity wards being bombed. Can you believe it, Greg, in 2022? I know... You are reacting to that very feeling, but it's you were just at Auschwitz. Can you believe that crap is going on today? That's that's it. It, just, it continues too, and and it's and it, it is well a small drop. But when you sit back and say, "I'm okay," well, I'll just watch it. I'm gonna throw stuff at the TV. I'm going to talk. I said, "We got got to do something," and and that's. The, I mean, the thought hit me too. If we ever did something at the meeting, the Allies immediately, and, and I talked with Rudolph about this at the beginning of World War II, and says, "No, you invaded Poland. No, it's the end of it right away. What catastrophes would we have would we have solved?" And you think to yourself, "Well, should America right now get into this and put an end end to end to this?" I mean, you look at their, I mean, all those columns of tanks and this spectacular air force that we have. I mean, we'd be able to take it out, and then. Does it escalate to 
to to World War World War World War Three and nuclear weapons. It's and hard. So it's hard the, to the, even the, say the, World War Three. Didn't Einstein yeah. say, "Well, if you have that, uh, I'll tell you, World War Four will be fought with sticks and stones again because everybody will be wiped out." God, we can't have World War Three, but are we already in it? It's it, the the what. What's likely, I mean, here's my sense of what's going to happen, is that with all these weapons that America, and frankly, America is, is giving, is giving, giving to, to the Ukrainians who are in there using them to fight so well, is that it's going to be attrition. It's going to continue on and on, and, and Russia's not going to want any, any more of it. And what is there going to get, going to get, what is it going to have once it's over? It's, it's sort of, remember what happened to Russia and Afghanistan and perhaps, you know, our, our Afghanistan history is complicated as well too, but they, they, they left after there was just more and more weapons being given to them and, and, and the Russians left. I, I, I hope that there's some type of resolution for the Ukrainians short of a, a 10 year war with, with Russia and, but, but doesn't don't all roads yeah don't all roads lead to Putin? I mean, and is the guy Michigana? Is it like Hitler with nukes? Is he reasonable? That guy went to law school too, and is but is he sick? Some people say he's about to die. He's the world's richest man. Isn't it all about Putin? And how do you size that up? <laughs> it it. it, it. It seems to me if once once Putin is gone and you can even call it when when Hitler was gone, uh, it's going to get better. It's going to get better. They're going to put some type of hardline person in there, but he may not have the leadership capabilities or that Putin has. It's going to get better, and he's not he's not going to be around forever. Um, and it's got to get better when Putin's gone. I, I don't. I don't, do they do they have a, a deep seated uh, dislike of Putin in Poland? Oh, uh, deep seated! Uh, it's, it's it's at our core. Um, <laughs> I don't think uh, yes, at, at our core. That's that's definitely uh, when it comes to Putin. Russia as a country, as a as a sphere of influence, as a as a power in Polish history politics um, is always seen as something subversive, something that's going to harm, uh, something is just never uh, good. Uh, that's why, again, like like I mentioned some time ago, um, I, it, it's hard to be surprised by their um, duplicity, but, but, but by their uh, maliciousness. Um, uh, so, right, but, but, right, we know, we, we can all stipulate, I hope you know that legal term, we will all stipulate that Putin is a bad guy. Yes. Greg brought up Hungary, and when Russia liberated Hungary after Eichmann wrought that destruction toward the end of the war, the people were thrilled. They were liberated. But soon thereafter, the Russian soldiers started raping all the women in Budapest, and that led to problems and uh, a Hungarian revolution. My question for you, Rudolf, does it go beyond Putin? Is there something wrong with the Russian people? Yes. Uh, the, uh, well, uh, I probably shouldn't um, phrase it the way you did it. Um, <laughs> but at, at core, I think, yes, the, the culture is just very different. Um, there is um, there, there, there is a certain um, element of 
disregard for others. Uh, there is widespread corruption. Uh, there is very little um, goodwill. Um, and there's violence very present everywhere. Uh, you might, for example, uh, not know that there is... Um, Conscription uh, every year. There's a there's a there, mm -hmm. well. Every person, every male, has to spend three years in uh, in, in Russian prison, uh, not prison, uh, army, right. uh, for training. And uh, their doctrine uh, always uh, assume that they're gonna have uh, an enormous amount of people that they can uh, throw at the enemy, and so that every male uh, gets to uh, as, um, train for three years. Those three years are something of a nightmare. Uh, you're getting uh, kicked, you're getting... Uh, there, there's there's, there's uh, violent, uh, abusive behavior all the time. Uh, and for the first year, you're only uh, cleaning after uh, the, um, the, the your older um, grunts, your, right. the, the, the people who have been there right. already and, for and, and let me suggest, <laughs> and you're getting indoctrinated, you are getting abused. We know the people who get abused become abusive themselves, so they get into this culture. Anyway, I don't want to put down the Russian people or their character. I want to talk about America. And just turn back one moment, Greg. I know you keep up with the news. And being in Krakow, you and I are texting. I imagine you have all the internet. So you are completely in touch with what's going on in Denver, America, the world. Am I right? Yes, yes, yes. My The, 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 the friend who took us out to Auschwitz today with both of us he says always always american phones nothing nothing better better than american phones yes but i we, we keep up with everything moment by moment here and there's uh, uh well, it's it, it, you can do your work from here right so yeah and i bet you are and uh you're probably having mediations maybe even some hearings i know how you operate you're an international man of mystery but it's no mystery how ukraine destroyed the battleship the moscow the the Moscow battleship, which was such a blow to Russia. And it's no secret how 12 generals have been killed. We can read it in the New York Times. America supplied the intelligence. At a certain point, doesn't Russia have to say, gosh, we're fighting America and we better do something? Has that occurred to you? Yes, yes. Absolutely yes, because that's that's exactly how it seems to be. Be the the whole war seems to be reframed. It was originally framed in in from what I've read and from what I even watched in the news over here. They have French news and English here in Poland. That's how we're able to get the the news in Poland. But they they reframed it from you know we're t tearing the Nazis out to that this is the Western. Uh, the West, the United States, who's behind all of this, and we have to stand up. So the propaganda will change over to that, to that, and it it's dangerous, and it becomes dangerous on our side, and it becomes dangerous on, on their side too. It's really dangerous as, as as it accelerates. And I think the danger is right here in America. Our democracy is teetering, and I worry about the midterms, Republican takeover, efforts to impeach Biden setting the stage for Donald Trump to come back to the presidency 2024. He will abandon NATO, let Putin have its way. I'm worried about that, and I'm going to fight to make sure that doesn't happen in America to the extent I can. Do you worry about that? Uh, well, 
Yeah, of course. Uh, that, that was one of the first uh, um, logical thoughts that uh, were in my mind when I thought at the beginning of the war. Uh, what would have happened if, uh, if, if, if Putin attacked the, the two years before or a year before, or two years before, right, exactly, uh, where, where Trump was still uh, the, the president? I, I really worried. I, 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 so right, but have you, thought, years, have you thought about this, Rudolph? Have you thought about, well, why did he time it now? And will it be ongoing in June? I expect so. Is it possible that that's when he will bombard Lviv or escalate further to knock the January 6th proceedings against Trump off the front page, off the leads on the nightly news? I'm telling you that Trump never wants to be held accountable for anything he did. And to me, Trump and Putin are buddies and I just regard this timing as suspicious that way. There is a lot of interesting things when it comes to the timing of the attack. Um, most likely he wanted to wait for, uh, as far as I know I've heard, uh, he was uh, trying to wait for Nord Stream 2 uh, to be open, uh, mm-hmm. to, to, to start running. Uh, but I don't know uh, if, if, if you might be familiar with the fact that uh, uh, Germany, the German side... Uh, yes. Um, they, on, they, 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 said, they said we're done with that. Thank barriers. God. Yes. Yes, um, and uh, that seems odd to me, right? Because why would you be for the um, for running the, the the gas pipe, and suddenly you're saying, "Oh, there's uh, some legal matter that has to be resolved in a couple of months." Um, that that had to be obvious, obvious from the very get-go. It was something about that the, that the company that was uh, uh, by Gazprom had to be registered in, in Germany, not in not in Switzerland. Which was like, why didn't you see that at the beginning of wait, the? Wait, of, wait, wait of, a second. We- we have our headline. We've got a Polish guy being suspicious of Germany. I think that's always wise. What? <laughs> I, yeah. I think you're counting 40 million of us over here. Yes. <laughs> and uh, I, uh, suspicious is maybe a different word, but uh, some, in some way, of course, frustrated how um, at least the, the media says that uh, right. they're not far uh, enough. I would be I would be actually suspicious of that because I, I'm not seeing as much of uh, them dragging their heels. They're they're a little bit more cautious, but that is also understandable in their culture. Uh, in their minds, we maybe don't see Germany uh, as much as uh, the Nazis, but they have it in their history. Uh, I'm speaking, of course, for myself, but me and my friends, when we meet other European Union youth, when we see Germans, we don't see the um, descendants of the Nazis. We we don't feel it, it, it. If anything, it's it's so sort of a joke. It's a, it, it's it's past history. But they have it in in their in 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 their psyche that they shouldn't be aggressive. They shouldn't make rash moves. They shouldn't be um, uh, rabble rousing, uh, rat, saber rattling. And so I see dragging their heel, heels as a way to be uh, cautious because they don't want to um, appear as uh, the nature in them that they're really fearing, the, that they're scared of. Right. Plus, they don't want to pay too much for gas. Nobody wants to pay <laughs> higher prices. And <laughs> Yes, of course. It, it, speaking of timing, and we're all speculating on the timing, but nobody has to guess about this, and I'm worried about Greg and Rose again, because isn't May 9 a big date? Isn't that the date of the Russian celebration of defeating the Nazis? And some people think Putin's going to make a big show that day. 
Craig, have you thought about this? Yes, I have thought about that. And I'm, and I'm thinking about it right now. And I think about it, I'll think about it tomorrow. And I'll think about it when we get on the ground tomorrow. So we're, we're going to meet some people in Lviv and we may be out by May, May 9th, but we're going to make, uh, make decisions once we get there. That's what I can say. Well, God bless you. <laughs> Um, this has been a great discussion. Thanks for being my foreign correspondent, Craig. Thanks for coming into uh, Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. We'll talk about law and a bunch of other things some other time during one of our gatherings, maybe back on a podcast. But your last words as you are off on this adventure. Does it feel good? You just went to Auschwitz. You're doing something to try to save the world. I admire that. It's it feels it feels good. It does, and and it feels it it. it you're, you're raised to always want to do more. You're raised to always want to do the right thing, and you have a scenario where you can you can do it. I'm in a position where I can do it, and uh, I, I want to stay the heck out of other people's way, not cause any trouble. Take in stories and be able to tell stories, and that's what we're gonna uh, come back with. Uh, safe and sound. Tell everybody. Amen. Tell everybody what kind of supplies you brought over there. But, or it start. It started out exactly as uh, Rudolph said. I can, said I'm going to volunteer at the border. You know, I've gone down to volunteer at the border in 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 in, in Mexico, in our, in our country as well, at a time of my life. But I said I'm going to go volunteer. I want to do humanitarian work. I can do it for the next two weeks. And is within 24 hours of looking into this, said we don't need humanitarian work at the border. We need supplies. We need tourniquets. We need first aid gear. We need tactical supplies. And so we. That's what we need. We don't need anyone at the border. We don't need vitamin B or any type of organic food at the darn, darn border. We need we need equipment in, inside, and if you bring it, we'll, we'll take it take it right to them. So I said, all right. And I started going around to, to, off of Amazon into every Army supply store in uh, in Colorado and finding out that every this was an amazing story that, it, that they're sold out of everything and they, they one gentleman in Colorado Springs told me that within four or five days uh, of the war starting there was you know uh, 10 Ukrainian men who were there having everything shipped to, to Chicago and then from Chicago to Warsaw and then they were, they were off with all the all the equipment that they had and there's an uh, interesting article in the New Yorker about that same same thing about what's what's occurring with the supplies so um, that's what we're bringing, first aid and tactical supplies, and that's what they said they needed, so that's what we said we'd do. It's something else. Trish found some more stuff at a police supply store, and I never yeah. thought in my life that I'd be buying equipment to help with bullet wounds, but I think she yeah. found something like that, and I hope that helps save people because you're over there to distribute it. That, that's that's right, and we have someone we're going to distribute it to, and we've got, uh, with the help, frankly, of my, my office as well, the Gold Law Firm. Our, we there's people in our office, and we have, we have a from from Ukraine from Ukraine, and they're helping. But Trish emptied out the uh, the store with the tourniquets and the the wound closures, things that I knew very little about. And uh, but that's what they need, and that's what we're going to bring them. Well, God bless you. Do you think you'll be in Eastern Europe next week, or do you know? It, it, it's it's almost. We didn't buy a return ticket, and we're taking it one day at a time, and so that, that's the plan. Uh, the May ninth uh, holiday 
for for Russia does does cause concern, and we may be back in Poland in in, in forty eight hours. So. Well, we may have you on again soon because I really learned a lot. Rudolph, I can see why Greg likes you. Why do you like him? (laughs) Um, Well, uh, he is asking a lot of questions, and that's my weak spot. Uh, I love when people uh, do that, when we can have uh, discussions. Um, There's something uh, very uh, direct about him, um, and uh, that makes me... Uh, learn a lot from him and also from his questions. Uh, There is an immediate um, goodwill and genuineness uh, about Greg. I I will tell you, this is fascinating. I asked Rudolf, where did he learn to speak English so well? And he he said, South Park. That was his instant answer. (laughs) So that's what Colorado has to contribute to Straight from the University of Colorado, two alums, and uh, boy, Craig, this was tremendous. Give my best to Rosa and uh, safe travels, okay? Thank you, Craig. All right. Bye, Rudolph. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too, sir. Bye-bye. Now, during the pandemic and otherwise, a lot of people have so much affection for their pets. That must come up all the time. What's going to happen to Scruffy? What can you tell us about that, Michael Bailey? What you can do is create a pet trust in Colorado. You put money into trust, and then that money is available and earmarked to care for the dog. And it can last the lifetime of the dog or 21 years, whichever is shorter. And then when the time frame for the trust is up, you can dictate who gets whatever leftover money or I have several clients who will leave it to some sort of animal shelter or animal rescue to be able to care for other animals. How cool is that? You can go to Mike Bailey's office and he has offices all over and you could meet at your home, whatever. I love the way you practice law. You've kept it going for a long time. Tell everybody how they can make you their lawyer. So my phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. They can call me or they can go online to mobileestateplanning.com. And there's a link there where you can schedule an appointment with me. I've been fighting for Colorado crime victims for the last four decades. There's a great new Colorado law. It allows victims as far back as January 1, 1960 to hold accountable the perpetrators and the organizations that allowed it to happen. If you were sexually assaulted, now is the time to come forward. Call me anytime you are ready at 303-861-2800. Ask for Craig, Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. Hey, this foreign correspondent show could not exist without our Israeli correspondent, Ken Toltz. You knew him. You loved him when he lived in the front range of Colorado. But now he's made Aliyah. He went to Israel, what was it, two or three years ago? Kenny, welcome back. Yeah, 2019, summer of 2019. Give everybody the short bio. Yeah, well, you know, I grew up in Denver and Denver Public Schools, George Washington High School. I'm a proud patriot. Uh, of course, I'm also educated at the University of Colorado Boulder and University of Denver as well. And uh, our family's been in 
business on both sides of my family for generations in the Denver Jewish community, uh, leadership as well, and active with all sorts of nonprofit organizations and good causes and uh, supporting politicians. Of course, myself have about a 40-year career working in the political arena as well uh, with Democratic candidates and Democratic causes. Uh, you know, you move to Israel and all, the politics is all local, of course. So there's a different, uh, you know, ideologies all over the board in Israel. It's a lot different than, than the United States where you have the two-party system. Here they have about a 12-party system. Uh, and I think, Craig, the last time we spoke, uh, there was just an election and they were forming a government, if I'm not mistaken. And that may be but uh, you bring up politics, you bring up your roots, and our commonalities, including you and I being part of a very sort of exclusive club, right? We both ran for office as Jews. I don't know about you, but I felt that I had to do it, you know. Um, and we ran against popular incumbents, and we lost. I ran against Bill Ritter in 1996, and you ran against Tom Tancredo in? The year 2000, on the same ticket with Al Gore, who lost Colorado, <laughs> if you remember, well, George I W. Do. Bush. And you remember who was running in 96? In 96? It was, was Dolby Bill Clinton. Clinton. Right. Yes. And you know who won Colorado? I, I thought Bill Clinton won Colorado no, in 96. No, Dole did. Although Clinton no won kidding. Denver really big, as you might imagine. Wow. Yeah. Colorado is. I do not remember that. That's because I'm just slightly older than you. But I admired your effort against Tom Tancredo, who uh, I got to know. He's sick now. Hate to see that. But what are, what are your dominant memories of that race? It was Columbine, right? Well, I think. I think what you remind me, Craig, is that people blaze the trail and uh, you ran uh, for the district attorney's race. And uh, my friend Scott Levin, who now heads the Anti-Defamation League, ran for a state representative seat. Um, So people from the Jewish community stepping up to run for office was not usual. If we know that in the 50s, 60s and 70s. And somebody had to uh, take it on. And I was really proud of that campaign. I was really proud of the effort that we put together and how well we did. And uh, it was a cause that was definitely worth fighting. I'm sure you felt the exact same way. And I'm also very proud of all the support that I had, both you know in Colorado and around the country. Um, this week, I'm reminded of all the support that I had from the pro-choice community. I worked closely with uh, NARAL and uh, Colorado Planned Parenthood, Rocky Mountain Planned Parenthood worked publicly with them to support the women's rights to choose. And uh, it's shocking what the news that came out this week. And I know everybody who's worked so hard for so many years is just ready to go back to work as hard as it takes because we're not going to give up what's already been gained in terms of women's rights. I ran in a nonpartisan fashion. I was an independent running against an incumbent Democrat, but Bill Ritter was pro-life. And I tried to make that an issue, and people said, well, what's it got to do with anything? I said, look, if Roe v. Wade goes away, then every race is going to be about abortion. And as a DA, you have to enforce the bubble law, although arguably that was the city attorney. But I said, you're elevating a guy 
who may be, I don't know, governor of Colorado someday, and if he's pro-life, that's something you should think about, because I'm pro-choice, and I said I'm pro-gay rights too. So I was hard to categorize, but you're making me feel good, like we were trailblazers, and now Colorado has a Jewish governor, a Jewish AG, a Jewish secretary of state. Did we pave the way for that? And and many in the state legislature, of course. You know, uh, well, I, I like to think that we did. I like to think that, you know, people are inspired by other people who step forward. I never intended to be a candidate in my life. It was, uh, I don't want to say it was an accident, but it was just a series of things that came together. And uh, I, I searched in 1999 for somebody to run against Tom Tancredo, and no one would take that race on. None of the state representatives or state senators or office holders or county commissioners who are Democrats in the 6th Congressional District were willing to step up and run against Tom Tancredo. And I said, somebody has to run against this guy, and, and if it has to be me, then I'm the one and I will do it. But it was never a lifelong ambition to run for office, and I think that goes the same for you, Craig. You found yourself in the circumstances, and you decided to step up and take on the, uh, the mantle of being a candidate for public office. I'm trying to remember what was going through my head back then, but I was turning 40, so that will make you do different things. <laughs> I, I figured it was time to make a move one way or the other, but let's talk about you, because talk about making a move. You are such a part of Colorado, your family, dependable cleaners. If anybody was a native and a stalwart of Colorado was Ken Toltz, and you up and moved. What's up with that? Well, it's kind of, as you said, it's, I think it's tied to times of our life. And this is a different time of my life when I have uh, an amazing opportunity to write a new chapter. And I decided after my folks passed away in the late, you know, 2018 and 2019, that that was an opportunity to move forward and do something that I had always been passionate about and, uh, come to Israel as, as a citizen, which was, uh, yeah, a big step, a big, big leap. I'm asked here all the time by Israelis and friends that I meet about my move to Israel, my decision to move to Israel. Um, it's not uncommon for Israelis to look at me like I must be crazy to give up life in the United States to live in Israel. But I tell them, you know, I wanted the opportunity to really live a meaningful life at this stage. And every day here, is incredibly meaningful and incredibly challenging and incredibly interesting. Uh, and you're fully engaged in what goes on here. And just these last few days have been an, an amazing example of that. I don't know how closely people have followed the news, uh, but there was two major back-to-back -back holidays this week in Israel. One is Memorial Day, which is Yom Hazikaron, the Day of Remembrance. And the next day is Independence Day, Yom HaTzma'ut which is really an interesting juxtaposition if you can imagine having July 3rd be Memorial Day and July 4th going to celebrate the day after you're essentially mourning. Uh, and, you know, a country like Israel is a, so small that there, no one here is untouched by losing people or people who were traumatized by recent wars or even the wars back in 48 and 56 and 67. So Memorial Day is very meaningful. It also marks the memory of people who had been killed in terrorist attacks. And they've counted over 4,000 have been killed in terrorist attacks in Israel um, over the last 74 years. 
And just at the evening of Independence Day, there was a terrorist attack in a city not far from where I live. And we're living with that today, the next day, of three men who were fathers of multiple children were killed in a horrible way. I don't think I even want to talk about it. Um, out of the blue, they were celebrating in a park, Independence Day. It was dark. They were attacked. And there are 16 children who are now missing fathers because these three fathers were killed. Shocking, terrible. We have read about it. I want to go back to Yom Hazikaron. Is that the moment where everybody stops? The country stops, buses stop. Is that the holiday that they do that? Yes, and actually there was a holiday the week before where they also do that, which is Yom HaShoah, mm -hmm. which is the Memorial Day for victims of the Holocaust. And in both of those holidays, Yom HaZikaron and Yom HaShoah, the air raid sirens sound at a specific time, and everything stops. People get out of their cars and stand at attention and uh, for two minutes, as you can hear it everywhere. And I, I observed it very closely this year, watching that scene like there's just nothing you've ever seen like that um and you, you know you really get the sense that it's personal uh for everybody and that the idea of showing respect in a public way is very meaningful and very israeli i think this is one of the things that they uh you know kind of pride themselves on so yom hashoah is the holocaust remembrance day and then yom hazikaron is remembrance day which is memorial day for victims of the wars and victims of terrorism. You are good enough to uh, comment on my Rabbi Swearing podcast. And I didn't put it in my column for the Colorado Sun, uh, but at the Sunday uh, Yom HaShoah celebration, he gave a prayer, but he also brought with him the sound system and described the scene in Israel when everything stops and the sirens wail, and he did that at Bobby R. Park, which is great touch by Rabbi Swearin. What role did yeah. that guy play in your life? Well, it's funny that you asked. Uh, rabbi Swearin was my family rabbi for many years when I was living in uh, Greenwood Village and raising our daughters. They went to preschool and day school there and had religious school at Temple Sinai. And then the highlight was we went on a trip to Israel for the millennium with Rabbi Zwerin and his wife, Ricky, as the leaders. And we spent about two weeks together with a small group from Temple Sinai and the rabbi and his wife, who's Israeli, and went all over Israel together, had a bat mitzvah for my oldest daughter. And then we're uh, down in Eilat, Israel, as the millennium turned from 1999 to 2000. So um, there... He's he was a one of a kind. He is a one of a kind person. I was really glad to hear your podcast interview. Um, you you did an excellent job really bringing him out. He has a tremendous you know knowledge, but he also has a tremendous ability to communicate and a great sense of humor. And I've so appreciated hearing him again. And then I think you also included his speech in that podcast or a link to it, and I I listened to that as well. So wonderful job, Craig, in bringing out Rabbi Zwerin again. Don't, he, you, don't you miss going to Temple Sinai? I mean, I think about, wow, I'm sort of a homebody, you know, native Denverite. I've never moved far 
my most important body of water is the Highline Canal, okay? So <laughs> I'm just that kind of guy. And I think I've been to Israel once. I broadcast from the Jerusalem Post building. It was exhilarating, but the food was different. The showers are different. I like the comforts of home. Uh, are you missing any comforts of home? You get my podcast, that's cool. Or do you get it all in Israel? Is there really no difference? Uh, no, we're not in Colorado anymore. <laughs> What's missing? What can't you have in Israel? I mean, for there's one, no, it seems... There's no super it, target. Uh, so I, I always say what Israel needs is just one super target. <laughs> there you go. Um, you know, we're living, we're living in a different society here, but the infrastructure in Israel is actually tremendous. And um, and getting around is easy. I just finished the whole month of April showing a friend around who was a first time visitor from Colorado as well. And we traveled all over the country and did so many fun things, met so many great people. It was just tremendous, whether we were on the coast um, in Haifa or the Arab cities, Akko and Jaffa and Jerusalem, the old city, of course, and Tel Aviv. Uh, just Really amazing, and the weather has turned beautiful here, so it's a, a deluxe time of year. And there's still not a lot of tourism in Israel yet, even though COVID is pretty much you know under control and there's no mask rules. Tourism has not really come back fully. Uh, I do expect it to be this summer busier. Now, you rue the absence of a super target, but what about Amazon? Amazon Prime, does it work there? Oh yeah, there's even there's even lockers where you go pick up your Amazon packages. Yeah. They have package that in Greenwood Village now. It sounds like the same thing. Who goes to Super Target anymore when Amazon delivers? I don't know why their no stock whole, whole is down. Foods. They should check out Trish's orders. My God, we should. I think privately we should inflate the price of Amazon, but then we get into oil and gas and all of that. But what about me? There's a lot of online shoppers. Definitely a lot of online shoppers in Israel as well. What about DoorDash? Do they have that too? Oh, yeah. We call it Walt, W-O-L-T. I'm one, I'm one of their best customers, Craig. So can you get something like from the New York Deli or is that too far away? <laughs> no, I've been trying to get Chipotle all this time. <laughs> haven't been able to find it. Well, but I got something that looked an awful lot like a chicken burrito. Here's what I noticed. There were no golf courses in Israel. I didn't see a lot of parks. It seems like everybody lives in about one-third the space you would get in Greenwood Village. Are you more confined there? Uh, actually, there are parks in large and small parks all over the place. Um, and uh, I have to say that people in Israel who, are, who live on the coast tend to live in buildings, condominiums. Um, I happen to live in a neighborhood that are single-family homes and an apartment attached to a home, so I'm on the ground floor, which is really a nice place to be. Um, but the population centers tend to be people living in buildings, um, and and then the um, what can be tricky is sometimes these are buildings without elevators. I was just in one in Tel Aviv the other day. It was six stories, six floors up, six flights up of stairs. Um, yeah, so that's that could be a little challenging. <laughs> but no, I agree. You got to you got to come here and experience what it's like, you know, to be in a country like this where the all the families were out for Yom Hatzmaut, Craig. It was a beautiful thing, and they had flyovers up the, up and down the coast. So the Air Force performed various acrobatics 
And there were literally thousands of people all up and down the coast, outdoors with barbecues with their families. Like you would see back in the day, and you know, maybe we'd go to Washington Park or City Park and have family barbecues outdoors for in the summer evenings. They this is that's a real strong feature of Israeli society is getting together with family on um, major holidays, religious or state holiday occasions. And well, it's, talking, it's really a beautiful thing yeah, to see. Yeah, you're talking about Denver, Colorado, America. Back in the day, do you feel like those days back are gone? Day, uh, I believe so. Long gone. And, and what happened? Why are you thinking America and those days are gone? Oh, I, that's a very good question. I'm not not a sociologist, and um, I think the view from America, the view of America from overseas, is very interesting. In um, especially for somebody who's as politically attuned as I am, and I think I might have mentioned to you that when that January 6th event happened in the Capitol, that pretty much rang my bell uh, and gave up a lot of hope for America to see, you know. Are all of our American citizens storming the Capitol on, on the Senate floor and the House floor, making a mockery of the U.S. Capitol on behalf of Trump? It was just nauseating and and scary. And I, I think it's just gotten worse and worse, not better. So um, I'm happy to be over here viewing America from abroad. And not only do you view it, you write about it. You write about Israel. I love your column writing. Tell everybody where they can find it. Yeah, thank you. Um, I've been this past year. I've been writing in the Jerusalem Post. Uh, I write in English. The Jerusalem Post is an English language publication, which has its website. Um, I think it's jpost.com. And I've been writing uh, on Israeli-made documentary films as they're coming out. So it's been a nice little uh, niche opportunity to meet Israeli filmmakers and talk about the creative endeavor and their films uh, in the historical context, which is very interesting to me as somebody who's a political historian or historian, political, whatever you want to call that, a student of both. I'm sure you are as well. Um, and, you know, the, the, the history here is so interesting that, and it always comes back up. It's always brought up, you know, Yom Hatzmaut, the day of Israel was declared a state by David Ben-Gurion. And the thing that people always want to remember is that it took only 11 minutes for the United States and President Truman to recognize the state of Israel. And that 74 years, they're still talking about that as what a, an important event that now, was. Now, weren't, and, weren't they uh, beat to the punch by another big country named Russia? I no, think so. No, no, no. Uh, no am no, I no. wrong? Was, didn't you're, Russia— you, you are incorrect, sir. All right. You are incorrect. We're going to have to wipe that out of the tape right here. Now, what am I remembering about Russia? And didn't they recognize Israel, too? Yeah, yeah, I think Russia did recognize Israel uh, for different reasons. You know, back in, back in the day, in the 1930s and the early 1940s, there were many communal farms, kibbutz, that were modeled after the communist ideology. And there, were, there was a proud communist party here as well, and people who were strong socialists who, you know, were, were this was before Stalin, right? Before they knew you know, how the underside of what communism really looked like. Now we know even what Russia looks like. It's shockingly sad um, to see what's happening. Uh, you know, one thing I wanted to mention is what's, what is interesting about living here is the mix of cultures of citizens. There is a huge number of Russians who have moved to Israel over the years. 
um, you hear people speaking Russian all the time. I've read where the former Soviet Union is far and away the biggest supplier of people in Israel. And then I think I remember that the second biggest contributor was Morocco, which would surprise people, right? That would surprise people, but you know, that's you're talking about two different important demographic elements of Israel is people who were born and raised for many generations around the Mediterranean in uh, what were considered Arab countries who who moved to Israel after 1948. And right. here they're called Mizrahi Jews, or sometimes they call them Sephardi Jews, which is related to Spain. And that's that's a huge number of citizens of Israel. Um, and then you have people from other countries. There's many French-speaking people here from France. There's many South Africans. But the Russians is is the biggest number by far. Right. It's It's probably close to a million. And now with this latest, um, you know, invasion of Ukraine, there's U- Ukrainians who are moving here and more Russians are moving here as well. And what I wanted to mention about that, besides the sheer numbers, is within about 20 years, we're going to have a whole generation who are born who are born of those families, but born in Israel, speaking Hebrew as their first language. And it's going to be interesting to see what that demographic has in the impact on Israeli society and Israeli values. Um, coming from Eastern European, you know, families. Hopefully they'll appreciate freedom more. I think, I hope that's what's going on in Ukraine. It's emerged in Poland. Once you get a taste of it, it's like a new convert. Wow, I can have this. They are zealous about protecting it once they appreciate freedom. And I hope that will break out in Israel. We need to talk about Putin and what's going on. And Israel's response, are you satisfied? They seem to play a bit of a double game I have here in my studio. In fact, I had it when I talked to uh, Rabbi Zwerin at Jewish News with the blurring headline, Zelensky excoriates Israel. Wow, what a conundrum for an American Jew. Do I support Zelensky? Do I support Israel? How can I support both? Tell me, Ken Toltz. Well, it, it's been interesting to observe a new government in this situation, which inherited a relationship with Putin that Bibi Netanyahu had built for many years. In fact, when Bibi was running for re-election, he had these huge posters around the country of him with Putin and of him with Trump, showing that he was a real international leader. And that was one of the ways he campaigned for re-election. So, um, and the benefit of the relationship between Israel and Putin has seen, we've seen it in Syria, which is, as you know, has been in civil war for many years now, a horrible civil war. And there's Islamic elements that are trying to take over as well. And so Israel has been given freedom of air action by the Russians who are supporting the Assad regime in Syria. This is this was the big complicating factor for the new Israeli government when Ukraine invasion happened was can we risk this relationship with Russia by being as critical as the West is in terms of certainly the United States leading there? Um, so I personally have been observing it not uh, with not a whole lot of approval, I have to admit. Um, but it's Putin has kept a relationship with Prime Minister Bennett, and so has Zelensky, which has been amazing to see it. You know why Israel of all countries. He's having conversations with both, and he actually, Bennett, the prime minister, flew off to Moscow a few weeks ago 
for a visit to Putin. We don't know what he's doing and trying to uh, create some dialogue between them, a way to communicate. It seems to me like somebody who's uh, really rolling the dice and playing, you know, in this superpower game. But um, it's interesting to see it, and we don't know what the results are, so it's too early to judge for sure. Right, but didn't the relationship change with uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov saying Hitler was a Jew and uh, some of the worst Nazis are Jews? Holy cow. Prime Minister Bennett fired off on that. Do you think that changed things? Apparently, after the Lavrov lathering, uh, as a blathering anti-Semite, um, Putin apologized to Bennett. And that's, that was the news flash yesterday, that Putin and Bennett had a phone call and Putin literally apologized, which is like never happens. Putin never apologized for, to anybody for anything. But uh, you can, you'll see that that news was reported, widely reported. Um, so there was a phone call between them. It's just, you know, uh, to me, it's a little bit bizarre to think that this, this guy who's really not a seasoned politician, let alone a seasoned international uh, player, is having this relationship back and forth with Putin and Zelensky in the middle of this horrible war. And Israelis are... Um, it's just not sure what to think, but they were very proud that the government sent a field hospital to help in Ukraine, and it hasn't held back in the United Nations as well. Um, but it's, you know, I, I think you have to say Israel at 74 is a whole lot different than Israel at 50 or Israel at 29. Um, but when I went to college here, it was Israel's 30th uh, anniversary of their date of independence. And that was a young country back then, you know, only three decades old. Now it's Israel 74, and it's changed a huge amount, and the world has changed a huge amount as well. Right, and you don't have to look far for young countries that fought hard for their freedom once they achieved it. But Israel's born uh, out of the Holocaust and anti-Semitism before that. Now Joe Biden has labeled what's going on in Ukraine as genocide. Zelensky says it too. Instead of going after just Jewish people, they're going after Ukrainians for their nationality. And Israel has a lot of things to think about, but what about the morality? Just standing by during genocide? Isn't that a problem for Israel? Well, I think people are very aware of that conundrum here very, very aware, and there's, it's openly discussed as well. Um, but there doesn't seem to be a upheaval in the way of forcing a change in the government policy. Um, so th that's interesting as well. What happens? It, yeah, people are know, worried about... It's, over, it's happening over there. Right. This is, you know, the Israelis are very focused on what's happening here right around us. Right. It's a very small country and things happen every single day that are uh, traumatic and and scary and, and you know, risky people's risking their their lives. So um, it's seemingly the what's happening in Ukraine is relatively speaking far away and one step removed. It doesn't justify, you know, not taking a, a moral position. It just is, I think, part of the, Z the zeitgeist. Right. Everybody has their local concerns, and the whole world 
is wary of World War III. If World War III were to, God forbid, happen, what do you think the consequences would be for Israel? I mean, what would they do well, if 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 Putin escalates? God forbid, you know, touches an inch of NATO territory, and then can Israel stay neutral? Well. Arab states react. I'm worried about Putin having dirty deals with Khashoggi. I mean, not with Khashoggi, with Khashoggi's killer, uh, Ben Salman. I saw the way those guys slapped hands in South America. Do you know what I mean? As you play it out, what is the fate of Israel in all of this? Well, it's, 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 a, it's a good question that the existential dilemma of Israelis have been uh, they've based their security on building a military and society that's strong enough to defend itself by itself. Um, but it's always been fully aligned with the West and the democratic countries. So the the marriage of convenience with Putin and Russia, which um, Bibi Netanyahu developed, they you know they thought it was only. As everybody in the world thought, we bring Putin into Western, you know, situations and everything's going to be okay. And now we found out that's not the case. So Israel was brought into that same ideology of we're playing nice with Putin and uh, we're keeping our fingers crossed behind our back. And now we know, we see what's happening to the Ukrainian civilians, the most horrible, horrific lives that they're having to deal with it's so traumatic and so horrific the face of the military of a superpower which is completely unleashed and targeting civilians for with no strategy behind it other than create as much mayhem as possible um i think israel sees that and sees there you know for the grace of god goes israelis if any of these arab countries you know ever had the wherewithal to attack that's exactly what it would look like here there would be the, the gloves are off and there's no holding back. So um, I think Israelis are ready for that kind of a um, threat and feels, you know, that the military is strong enough and society can handle it, but they would certainly wouldn't want to have to be cho you know, choosing between the United States and Russia. I don't know. What a horrible place to be. Right. I don't know how you define yourself, but you're a Democrat, right? You were in America. Proud Democrat. You ran as Democrat. Proud Democrat. Oh, Le yeah. Liberal Democrat? Uh, I Yeah, I would say progressive Democrat. Mm -hmm. How does a progressive Democrat feel about Naftali Bennett? He's conservative. He's orthodox. How do you feel about him? Well, I didn't vote for him. Um, I voted for Yair Lapid, who's going to be the next prime minister if their power-sharing arrangement works. And his party, Yeshatid, won way more seats than uh, Bennett's Yamina party. So he's he's representing a minority party in this interesting government coalition that they were able to put together. Uh, and that's, you know, that's bar barely holding on by a thread. By They have, you know, people who defect to the other side and <laughs> come up with crazy reasons to do so. So we could be in a situation of calling for elections sometime later this year, it wouldn't be unusual to see that happen. I know and, he's not your cup you know, of tea, but is Bennett a smart guy? Is he a decent person? 
well, I have to say that I was I've been disappointed in these last few several weeks with these attacks that have been occurring, um, individual attacks by uh, Arab in, citizens of Israel, people who live in Israel, who've turned into to terrorism and just attacking civilians in five different cities and 14 people have been killed. Um, and I, I've really been disappointed in Bennett's ability to marshal his resources and say, we have, we're putting together a strategy to do something about this. I don't see that. And I think he's missing a major um, opportunity. And I really have been wondering about his leadership qualities in this situation. Sounds like Not a, that I'm saying we yeah. need to go back to Bibi. Right. But, but it sounds like that. a law and order issue. And Bibi had it more under control. Um, well, I don't think people felt like Bibi had it more under control, but um, what I don't see is any real, you know, sense of urgency. And, you know, you know this, when, when things like this happen, citizens expect their government to step up as public safety is their number one responsibility. There's nothing more important than public safety. And if people are dying when they're out having coffee on Dizengoff Street in Tel Aviv or Yom Hatzmahut parties last night, and the government's not saying we're we've got to change what we're doing and do something different and just do something better than they're failing in their number one responsibility to public safety. And I don't think the public is going to put up with that for much longer. Fascinating. Let's talk about BB. I've had a metamorphosis about the guy. I was a guest of Jared Polis when he spoke to Congress. Joe Biden would not attend. Obama was pissed. But I didn't like the Iran nuke deal, and I thought Bibi was a good guy. But as I see his associations with Trump, with Putin, with criminality, with being on the take, I've reevaluated the guy. He's Israel's longest ever serving prime minister, and he's still not uh, that old. Can he come back? Will he come back? What's his influence in Israel right now? Well, he's officially leader of the opposition, uh, whatever that really means. He is the uh, head of his party, continues to be the head and supported by the Likud uh, grassroots. They're not ready to, to dump him as the leader of their party. So he's hanging on and he's hanging on in the midst of he's on trial. I, mean, I know you know this, Craig. He, he's on trial for three criminal indictments, and every week he goes to the court and faces the accusers, and the, the evidence is coming out. Every week it's been coming out for weeks and weeks now, and there was no end in sight of when this trial will actually wrap up. But what's being aired publicly is not pretty at all, um, but it doesn't seem to affect his public political popularity among his followers. They just don't seem to care. Um, and I've had these conversations with uh, Israelis. And they say to me, you know, well, Bibi did a lot of good things. That's what they they give him credit for a lot of good things. So they didn't have the vision of who could replace him because he made sure that nobody was available. He was the irreplaceable man. He always, the indispensable man, he always held himself up as being indispensable and he never developed a bench. And anybody who ever worked closely with him would end up quitting in disgust. So there is no bench on the Likud party. And, and that's one of the sad things about Israeli politics. Even Bennett was somebody who worked very closely with Netanyahu and then was couldn't be prouder to replace him and get rid of him um, as prime minister. Sounds like a bad guy. It sounds familiar with what's going on in America. Do you think Donald Trump is done or is the second term yet to come? 
Oh, gosh. I, for America's sake, Craig, and for the Republican Party's sake, I hope they can figure out how to replace that guy as their leader. But same thing. So far, we don't see any real true signs of that, do we? No, he still dominates the Republican Party. I, I wish he would go away, and I wish Bibi would go bye-bye, but I really would like to see Putin disappear. See any prospect for that? Only I only know what I read in the newspapers, so sometimes there seems to be some rumors that maybe some of his people are going to figure out how to get rid of him. That's That seems to be the way it's right. going to have to happen. Mm. But I bet he has pretty good security. Let's say Trump <laughs> gets in. Could you see Trump... Uh, pulling out of NATO, NATO being weakened, a little bit of an alliance again with Putin. It doesn't well, sound just, good. I, Go ahead. Imagine if Trump was president this year in this situation. Right. We, we'd be like bouncing off the walls. He'd be, he'd be coming out with his statements of, you know, how strong Putin is and how smart he is and how savvy he is. I know it. And that may be just around the corner. I'm worried about the midterms and all of that. But I think, I'm hoping that the abolition of Roe v. Wade is like a dog uh, catching the car that it's been chasing. Now what? I think that Democrats are going to get active. People are going to realize the consequence of Republicans and Maybe it will turn the tide in the midterms. Of course, I'm in Colorado, not in Ohio. So am I overly optimistic? Could this be uh, a good thing as women and others who support pro-choice positions get activated by uh, the Roe v. Wade situation? Well, one thing we know, Craig, is that the Republican ideology is not the majority ideology. We've seen that in election results now. Um, nationally by significant numbers. So that's why they're monkeying around at state levels with the election laws to try to keep Democratic voters away from the ballots. And that's what is going to be something that we'll have to look at for the 22 elections is the voting patterns and these new voting laws to affect Democratic turnout because that's that's they, know they have to, in order to win, they have to lower Democratic turnout because they don't have a majority that's, you know, frightening, another frightening thing. But I also remember how many times I worked with the pro-choice community and with women to fight off ballot initiatives in Colorado, election after election after election that wanted to reduce women's right to choose or make to make their own health care decisions and to outlaw abortion. Um, and they used to call them personhood amendments, if you remember. Oh, I do. And so, now the Christy Burton Brown, who... Uh did that as a young woman. She went to law school afterwards. Now she's the head of the Republican Party. And this is an issue where I'm not extremely passionate about it. I think it's a tough issue, but I come down pro-choice. And as life happened, I think I've debated it in a public sphere more than anybody because I spent eight and a half years with Dan Kaplis, who advocated for this moment, this Alito-like decision and I would have my reasons, but what are yours? You've been active in the pro-choice community for a long time. What was your motivation? Yeah, you know, very good question. I, I, I think, you know, growing up with women in my family who were strong, influential women in their own lives, in their own right, certainly affected me. Um, they were my models. My grandmother, Esther Bogdanowitz, who 
co-founded Dependable Cleaners with my grandfather and co-ran that company. Um, and her family, the Weisbart family that were in the meat business and the cattle business, they were Jewish cowboys. Um, there were strong women in both of those families as well. So I think that, you know, influenced my decision in terms of, you know, women are leaders and they, they deserve to be recognized in their equal uh, rights as men. And I don't think it's it's not a stretch of the imagination to say that they should have control over their own bodies and their own making their own health care decisions. And that's not an issue for the state or a, any government to have a say in. So that was really easy for me when I was running for office. And I really felt great advocating for the pro-choice community. And, and, you know, I marched in the Women's March in 2017. It was one of the proudest moments of my life to be with multiple generations, grandchildren, children, and mothers and grandmothers together by the thousands and thousands who took to the streets of Denver. And I was there and they were all over the country. Um, and I think that, you know, was the first day of the end of the Trump presidency. It was the first day of the Trump presidency. and It was the first day of the end of the Trump presidency as well. So I, I, I'd like to be optimistic and think that this will galvanize uh, again um, and bring out the activism that knowing that we can't take for granted that these rights were going to be there without um, fighting for them. Um, but again, that's one of those things that remains to be seen in 2022. How, and I think there'll be specific elections to look at to say, did the women's movement um, have, make a difference or not? What are abortion laws in Israel? You know, Israel is very much in line with Colorado's, and it's not a religious issue here at all. Um, it's a civic uh, issue. And it's been interesting to see the reaction of Israelis saying that we don't have anything to worry about, even if the United States changes and reverses Roe v. Wade, it's not going to affect Israel at all. Um, and so I, I don't know how it's based in law, and I don't know enough about Jewish law to say how it's enunciated. You have to talk to Rabbi Zwerin about that to cover an issue like this. Uh, I just know that they're kind of watching with interest, um, you know, what's happening in the United States in general. They're watching with interest and they're watching with, you know, kind of an attitude of they can't believe what's been going on in the United States over the last several years. Let's go to an area of your expertise so I don't have to call anybody else because I've been active in gun control issues, but you even more so. Tell everybody why you got involved in that and uh, how you see that going in America. And then if you could tell us about Israel, where a lot of people say, oh, everybody in Israel has guns. It's just like America, only more so. I don't think so, but you are the expert. Well, it is very interesting to see what happens in Israel in terms of self-protection. Uh, but yes, I came to this issue because when I declared my candidacy in 1999 for the 6th Congressional District, three months later, the horrific shootings at Columbine High School happened right in the center of the Congressional District in Littleton. So that became the ground zero for media coverage of gun violence and laws to prevent gun violence. And so that became a big part of my campaign. And then, I, of course, I was affected personally as well. And uh, I've written about this in the Huffington Post that uh, one of my employees was a girlfriend of one of the shooters and actually bought the guns at a gun show on his behalf because she was 18 and he was 17. 
and we closed that loophole um, to make sure that you had to get a background check at gun shows in the 2000 elections. I worked side by side with um, what they called Safe Colorado was an organization that they formed, which was bipartisan to close the gun show loophole. Yeah, so I started working in, you know, really 1999 with uh, the gun violence prevention community. And for 20 years, we've worked and worked and worked and, you know, had some progress in Colorado. But it's so sad to see that the problem is is bad, if not worse than ever um, in everywhere, not just in Colorado, but everywhere. There is horrific mass shootings happening all the time to all sorts of people in all sorts of situations and traffic now in shopping centers and shopping malls in places of business uh, you know, on athletic fields. I'm sure you saw that videotape of the kids playing baseball and having to s- scurry off the field when gunshots were, were uh, heard in a park nearby. Um, yeah, it's I, I I can't say I feel like I've I've been a success in gun violence and all the work I've done in gun violence prevention, um, but I'm you know still aligned with the people who are working in that field and I know they're not giving up and they're very dedicated and very committed and very active and recruiting people all the time to help. So if if your listeners want to get involved, um, they can certainly look to my Safe Campus Colorado Facebook page and Safe Campus Colorado website to see what we've done uh, to try to get concealed guns off college campuses, um, which has been interesting as well because that gets into the gubernatorial race in Colorado, Craig. I'm sure you know um, on the Republican side, the leading Republican candidate is was elected regent of the University of Colorado. Heidi Ganahl. Heidi Ganahl. And I actually had a conversation with Heidi before she was running that race and about the laws in Colorado that allow concealed guns on college campuses for public universities. And she was interested in hearing up until she realized what my position was. And then she was done talking to me and never followed up and never talked to me again. Um, she's in alignment with, you know, the hard right Republican second amendment crowd that says any regulation of guns is not allowed by the second amendment. And so therefore deregulation in all in all ways, more guns for more people in more places is what I call their ideology. And we've we've seen what happens now with that ideology in action. It's just more death and more trauma for more people in more places. But what about um, Israel? So I, they keep coming back and saying, well, Israel's safe because everybody has guns. So not everybody has guns in Israel. There are people who have permits to have concealed guns. And there are people who have guns um, for military service. It was very interesting when these uh, terrorist attacks started happening in civilian areas, which started to happen several months ago during the holidays. Um, And the government said people who have a permit to carry their gun, we encourage them to carry it um, in a visible way. And people here have stopped terrorist incidents civilians with guns um have been on the spot so it happens um it usually it doesn't ha- what does it doesn't happen in the united states what happens is the bad guys are the ones who are shooting doing all the shooting there's not it's very rare that a good guy with a gun stops a crime in fact i did the research on that with the fbi and it's less than one tenth of one percent of the time does a good guy with a gun stop a crime 
you can look that up in FBI statistics. So 99% I, I, I of the time it's dangerous. Yeah, maybe I haven't read John Lott. Holy cow, that guy always bothered me. Pseudoscientist, yeah. and now he's anti-vax. That guy, John Lott, has done so much damage. There's so much disinformation on the part of gun people. And if I understand Israel correctly, there isn't a Second Amendment right to possess a weapon, but if you have the training, and a lot of people do with their military experience, then you can have one. Is that right? I well, mean, don't, don't you have to? System. Do you have to show some proficiency before you can get a weapon? I, I don't know, Craig. I just okay. I know there is a permitting system, and I do know that everybody you know, serves in the military here from the age of eighteen for two or years or three years. And so everybody goes through basic training, which includes handling a weapon. Even people who are going to be doing administrative jobs or jobs that are on, on computers and technology, they still have to go through basic weapons training. Um, and, you know, culturally, when you think about it, Israel, even though it's 74 years old, is a lot closer to when there was actual a need for militias to guard people's homes and neighborhoods in the 1930s and 40s as the United States was 250 years ago when the Second Amendment was written. So today's United States is we don't need local militias and patrolling the neighborhoods or you get, you know, terrible scenes like we've seen, you know, profiling kids walking home from the drugstore and they get shot by the neighborhood watch guy who's deputized himself and carries his gun to see if he can't uh, use it. Right. But that whole militia controversy, which we argued back in the day, was resolved by the late Justice Scalia in the Heller case. And so maybe it can be revisited. Hell, they're revisiting other presidents. I don't know. Uh, America has a gun problem. And I admire that you tried to do something about it. But now you've left. You're in Israel. Are you going to run for office there? Could you? <laughs> Somehow I knew you were going to get around to that, Craig. <laughs> no, no, I'm very happy not running for office and only engaging as a voter and an activist. Um, are you, I think a, my are you a member of, of a political party over there? Um, I'm not a member of a political party, but it's not because they haven't asked me. Um, I w if they asked me, I probably would join. There are several that I would consider joining. Um, but I'm I'm really focusing on getting to uh, comfortable in this new life and new country, learning, of course, the language of Hebrew, learning to speak Hebrew, and um, learning my way around in a, in a you know, unique environment, unique society. Um, so I've, that's been my main activity, and I, I feel like I've done a really good job at that in the last couple of years. I'm feeling like a success. What grade as level? A, as a, what they call Olim. Olim? Is that it? Olim. Olin, is that a Hebrew word? That's the, that's the plural plural word for people who moved to Israel who make Aliyah. So we're we're called Olin. Well, you have risen up to the task. What's your Hebrew at now? Are you at a college level, eighth grade? Where are you? <laughs> I, I'm at kindergarten. <laughs> no, I'm at I'm, trying, I'm, I'm at still preschool. trying to get to first grade. <laughs> no, come on. I bet you no, can I'm, read I'm, without probably, now. Uh, well, I can, yeah, I can read slowly. I can speak slowly. My vocabulary is improving, but um, I can never take enough Hebrew lessons. I've 
continually taking Hebrew lessons on Zoom or in person and continually signing up for more and more and more. Um, it's a tremendous challenge to take on a foreign language at this stage of life. But I think it has to be good for us mentally to try something new at this stage of life. I put out a special show in tribute to Norm Early. I expect you met him a time or two. He just passed away. Another guy I expect you encountered, I went to his wake. Kind of creeps me out, those open casket things. But I like Dennis Gallagher. And uh, I went to the wake right above North High School for a moment, paid my respects. You remember Dennis Gallagher? I bet you encountered him along the way. I go, I go way, way, way back with Dennis Gallagher when he was in the state legislature. And I was a legislative aide as a senior in high school in 1975. And I spent a semester down at the state legislature. And he was he was one of the just real, true characters. Um, you know, he was an old-time, old-time Paul um, with a tremendous sense of humor, great presence. And he, they just don't make him like Dennis Gallagher anymore from from back in the day and and he was enormously effective as well because he was so smart and so thorough and that's why he had such a great career for all those years um and and if i did know norm early uh i loved norm early i loved his attitude his his he was so upbeat so positive and uh, everything he did he did with full passion and full energy and i know you had a great chance to work with him and see him Professionally, I, I'm not in the legal end, so I just knew him more as a politician running for district attorney, and then he ran for mayor, did he not? Oh, yeah. And he got upset by Wellington Webb, and that was quite a race. But you know what I loved about Norm and Dennis, too? I didn't know Dennis, obviously, as well as Norm, but I knew him well enough to know that he had a love for the Jewish people in his kishkes, Dennis and Norm. They both felt exactly. comfortable around Jewish people. You know, some people do, some people don't. Norm, I think, had a lot of friends from college and law school who were Jewish. He grew up in Washington, D.C. I think that helps. And Dennis, he was a Northwest Denver guy, and a lot of his constituents were Jewish. A lot of his friends were Jewish. And he just had an affinity for our people, don't you think? Uh, I definitely agree with you, but I, you know, it also I also think that my parents' generation, and I think of people like Shelley Steinhauser, who made it a priority to for the Jewish community to reach out and create relationships cross culturally, cross religions, cross issues, and form coalitions and work together. Um, and I think that's why those relationships, um, you know, became ongoing to be so warm is as as people got to know each other, I think this is definitely the case as well with Federico Pena um, and with John Hickenlooper, Michael Bennett, you can go down the list. Uh, Pat Schroeder, of course, she was tremendous friend of the Soviet Jewry movement, never missed an opportunity to be publicly um, associated with this free the Soviet Jewry movement. Um, so I, I think that there was a lot of intentional relationship building and coalition building that made sure that we had those kinds of relationships. But of course, it goes to the character of those people that we just talked about as well. The Norm Merleys and the Dennis Gallagher's, the Dick Lambs, Pat Schroeder's, the Tim Worth's, you know, that they were um, an open character and being Jewish was never something in their book that was something to be held against somebody. That was beautifully said. 
And one of the things I love about writing a column and doing a podcast is it makes me think. It makes me talk to people like Rabbi Swearin. And then I went to Bobby R. to write a column about it, Denver's Bobby R. Park. And there was a lady pushing the Gold of My Ear House, uh, a pet project of Dennis Gallagher. And I learned that back in the day, Rabbi Swearin with Lillian Hoffman, he talked about it on my podcast formed that organization, Concerned for Soviet Jewry, and they got as their interfaith chairman, Dennis Gallagher. And Mm. then I read Lillian Hoffman. She was the wife of Harry Hoffman, famous liquor store. You remember that. I mean, you're in retail, right? Remember Harry Hoffman? I asked Rabbi Swarn, I said, well, how'd you know Lillian Hoffman? Was she a member of your show? And he said, no. She was at Beth Joseph. That was my show growing up. <laughs> anyway, it well, brings it, back a lot of know, memories. It, and the Toltz family was enough, in, the Bogdanowitz family was in the middle of all of that, right? Yes, and, and Harry Hoffman's son, Howard Hoffman, was my Hebrew school teacher at Beth Joseph High School, Beth Joseph Religious School. Do you remember that? Ethan Ivanhoe, I do not remember his son being a teacher there. He taught the Holocaust. I remember Ozzy Sladek being there after Mr. Kamenetsky. Of course. And Ozzy mm-hmm. Sladek just gave a great speech at the Alliance. I'm trying to get him on. I had never heard his story. I'm going to send it to you because they recorded it. Kenny, you and I could talk all day. And it's Shabbat. What is Shabbat like in Israel? Uh, it's really one of the most special times. What you know, Beginning Friday afternoon, everybody here... Their greeting to each other is Shabbat Shalom, and they're as they as they part company. They're they're always say Shabbat Shalom, which is, you know, translates as have a peaceful Shabbat, have a peaceful Sabbath, and, and it sets the tone for the fact that when sundown starts on Friday night, things change for 24 hours, and it's you know it's a very mixed society. So some people really what they call keep Shabbat very strictly and follow all uh, the regulations and rules. And some people just keep it in their heart and maybe light candles and say a a blessing over wine and a blessing over bread. But everybody wishes each other a Shabbat Shalom, so everybody gets into the Shabbat spirit. And uh, I think it's uh, family dinners on Shabbat, of course, is something that I grew up with in Denver with my grandparents, Bogdanowitz and Toltz. And it was a very special time for us. So um, uh, it's it's a beautiful tradition that they keep in Israel. And it's always noticeable because every week on Friday afternoon, everybody's saying Shabbat Shalom to each other. That is so cool. You know what everybody said at our Seder this year? Next year in Jerusalem. One year I'm going to be out there and we're going to get together, Kenny. Best to you and uh, your family. And I know the perfect way to end this conversation. First of all, you can say Shabbat Shalom. You got it. Thanks, friend. Shabbat Shalom. Okay. Thank you, Craig. Bye-bye. Bye. Michael, of course, is a great sponsor of my show. But more than that, he's my lawyer, my end of life planning lawyer. And I've got two dogs. What about you? I have two dogs right now as well. And not only do you love your dogs at home with your kids and your wife, but you get involved with dog issues in your law practice. Tell everybody about that. So I will write pet trusts, which is you can earmark 
money to take care of your pets. Um, you know, a lot of people, you know, they've got their dogs and you know, they love their dogs. But then if somebody were to, you know, if you're if you were to pass away, you know, who's going to take your dogs? Who would who would love your dogs as much as you do? I don't know that anybody would love your dogs as much as you do. But like I grew up with dogs. And so if I were to pass away, then my parents or my siblings could take the dogs. So when you set up a pet trust, you can dictate who's going to get those dogs and then who you can leave money to take care of the dogs as well. I like working with you and I think you are ahead of your time. You have 15 different locations. How cool is that? It's, it is nice to be able to go to all the different locations and you know meet people where it's comfortable and more convenient for them. And nobody wants to drive from one part of Metro Denver to the other to meet with a lawyer. You will come to them. Yep, and I'll deal with traffic so you don't have to. Tell us how people can get in touch with you. My direct phone number is 720-394-6887, or they can go to my website, which is mobileestateplanning.com. And again, that's mobileestateplanning.com. And there's even a schedule, you know, there's a book an appointment link on this on the website. All right, Michael Bailey, thank you. Hey, maybe you know my voice and me from the first half of my career when I was Denver prosecutor. Or maybe you know me from my time on the radio and now on my podcast. But my real job for several decades now has been to fight in the civil arena for victims of crimes. I've been fighting for Colorado crime victims for the last four decades. If your life has been damaged through the misconduct of others, there's a great new Colorado law, and it's for you. It allows victims as far back as January 1, 1960 to hold accountable the perpetrators and the organizations that allowed it to happen. If you were sexually assaulted, now is the time to come forward. Let's expose the truth. Let's get you some justice. Let me be your voice for a confidential consultation. Call me anytime you are ready at 303-861-2800. Ask for Craig, Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. Troubadour, my foreign correspondent from New Orleans. How are you? Greetings from New Orleans Jazz Fest. How are you, Craig? Doing great here. Now, is it required that a troubadour go to the Jazz Fest? And are you sitting in a coffee shop now having a, what do they call it, a bidet? Or it's a beignet? <laughs> Not a bidet. It's a beignet. No, no, I don't need it in the morning. But um, yes, the, the, the famous uh, sugared uh, pastry um, over at, at the... Um, what do they call it? Cafe Mondo. Um, yeah. Cafe Mondo, anyway, I think. It's, 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 yeah. Anyway, it's um, not something I'm having now. I'm just having coffee. My favorite coffee shop, watching the rain fall down on a um, morning, second day of Jazz Fest. Is the sun still shining? It is, but not here. It will later in the day. Tell everybody why you go to New Orleans for Jazz Fest so frequently. Well, for so many reasons. Craig, uh, I mean, it's 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 just an atmosphere of everybody being harmonious with everyone else, loving music, enjoying the food, company, the scenes, sights. It's just a fabulous place. You immerse yourself in it, and being in the French Quarter, it's it's very quaint. You feel like you've you've left the modern world, and you're, you're kind of in a little cocoon. It's a special feeling. 
Is anybody wearing a mask? Um, very few. So it feels back to normal for you? Yes, very few. My wife is telling me that she's she's uh she's telling me about the new variants and this and that, but uh, people don't seem to be worrying about about that here. But you know, it's outside too. Lisa's back in Colorado. You go and you hang out with your fellow music lovers. I think it's fantastic. As is your song this week. I tell you the topics, and you said I haven't, and it's perfect. The sun still shining. And it means so many different things. First of all, it's a classic Dave Gunder song with a sun in it, a, a train. But that word sun can mean a lot of things because you call your dog sun as well. And how come you don't take Riley to Jazz Fest? Well, I know he's being taken care of there. By the way, have you taken him for a walk yet, Greg? Not yet. I'm not sure I can keep up with this sidewinder. <laughs> no, my wife's taking care of him. He, it, this would be a little too much for him. How old is Sidewinder? About 19 now? No, he's not 19. Don't rush him. He's 14. Anyway, you call Riley your son because you have two beautiful daughters, Rachel and Sarah, and you apparently need another male in the house. I understand it. That's why we have our Ico girl. But this song, A Sun Still Shining, you probably didn't write it about Riley. Who did you write it about? Um, I don't remember writing it about anybody, Craig. In fact, in fact, um, I think um, I, I really don't remember the specifics of writing that song. It just came out of you because it has all of the elements, but it's a beautiful concept. I call it sort of a sad song of moving on, but with optimism, as are most of your songs on most of your albums, including this, the Troubadour album. I love it. Because I had a convertible, and you made a reference to a convertible. What about you? Did you have one? Oh, right, putting the top down. That's yeah. right, just the joy, just the joy of, of a road trip. Um, I did. My first car, a 1967 GTL. Oh, my first and best car. I got a hand-me-down Chevy Super Sport. But I like the concept of just driving. And I've got foreign yes. correspondents in Poland greeting Ukrainian refugees, they are over there in that part of the world. I have another foreign correspondent today in Israel. And the bottom line is a lot of people get run out of situations or land, and they just got to drive. And their reality is shifting and, uh, right. That's and right. leaving all the madness behind. It, That's right. It feels good. It's, it's freedom. It's you know, being in a, on a road trip like that with the top down. It's an allegory of of uh, just freedom, no worries, the and, other, and having the future stretch out in front of you with all with all its mystery and, and opportunity, right? Right. The other most beautiful concept in here, and it's in other songs of yours and other people, but a metaphor for the sun shining is somebody smiling at you, right? Is there anything more valuable in the world than somebody smiling at you? That's what we crave, I'm, right? Yeah, I haven't really thought about that. That's a great thought. And, and and the answer is no, there's nothing more beautiful than that. We need it. Everybody needs that. I'll tell you what I'm thinking of. I just put together a special edition for Norm Early, my friend, my most important, impactful boss ever. And that guy had a smile that could light up the room. If you were ever fortunate enough to be in a room where Norm Early started laughing 
he had one of those booming laughs. You know what I mean? One ass said in a person, I can't yeah. believe it's silence now. Oh, that's, I'm sorry to hear that, Greg. Well, it happens. The sun is still shining here in Colorado. It will in New Orleans. Thanks for being my foreign correspondent from Narlands, and thanks for this beautiful song, Is Sun Still Shining? Happy to do it. I'll tell you my stories when I get back. Thanks, Craig. All right. Safe travels, Troubadour. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Sending out a message Crawling from the wreckage Anybody left gonna take this car Train leaving the station Crying for the nation Giving in to hate and lose it all Life goes by in the blink of an eye Little ray of light Little patch of blue sky Bringing me everything worth knowing My head in the clouds I'm dreaming out loud I'm turning from the crowd I keep on going I don't need no heavenly wings to fly I got mine Long as there's a sun Still Shine. We're heading out of town Baby got the top down An open road anywhere is fine the Wind in your head When you smile, I know that there's a sun still shining. Reality is shifting, the darkness lifting. Knowing your love is here, fine. Bailey, a friend, a lawyer, a sponsor. Tell everybody how you bring peace of mind to their life. So by setting up your estate plan, you know what's going to happen to your stuff when you die. You know where it's going to go, you know who's going to get it. We've got everything in place so we're not running to a court to try to get 
guardianship and conservatorship as quickly as possible. But then it's an orderly proceeding of things. So, you know, there's already enough chaos with the medical emergency, but the legal part of it and who can make decisions is all outlined, it's all set up. So there's, it's like the, the smooth transition of power. That's cool because you can avoid so many problems by having a medical power of attorney and discussing it with a smart guy like Michael Bailey because who should have this? It's probably somebody close. Who do you trust most among your children to make that call? These are the hard and good questions that you ask every day, right, Michael? Right, and if you ask them beforehand, when you're not in the middle of a crisis, then when a crisis hits, we're not trying to do crisis management and medical emergency and everything else. We're going, okay, we've got a smooth transition of power here. We've got a smooth who's in charge, and we can have that all flow so that we can focus on the care. There are so many things in life that you can fill out a form and save yourself money, save yourself heartache. Some people die out of nowhere quickly, but more often you get sick, you have medical difficulties, so it all goes together. But your system works, it works beautifully. What is the best way to contact you these days? Best way, uh, you can give me a call. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. Or you can go online to michaelbaileylawllc.com. And there is a an appointment page on my website that you can use. So either way is fine. Thanks, Michael. Hey, if you like this show, please shout it out on your Purple Apple podcast app. It would be so wonderful if you would scroll down, spot that place to leave a five-star review and your personal review. Kind words appreciated. Thanks so much. Tell your friends. Hey, I hope you like that show, Foreign Correspondence. It's cool that Kenny Toltz is there with knowledge of America, Colorado, Israel, and we get to talk to him regularly, and I learn a lot from him. Greg Gold is a smart guy. Decades ago when I first met him, he was a World War II buff, a student. He likes thinking about the great events of the world, studying up. And now he's taken action. I admire that. His interview, great. Thanks, Rudolph. Good luck, Rosa. And then our troubadour from New Orleans. Music City, Jazz Fest, as sun still shining. It's a sad song, but with optimism. We had a sad week with the passing of Norm Early. The world seems like it's in disarray, but it's always darkest before the dawn. I hope dawn is breaking in your world. Mine too. Until next show, thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.